It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's real? What's real? What's real? What's real? Welcome back. It is episode 81 of the What's Real podcast. No idea why, but 81 is like one of my favorite years, at least for pop culture. So we'll go with that this week. Uh, so episode 81 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-conspirator, my co-host, and of course, my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the motherfucking J? I am pure power fire. This week, hey, you know, PPF in it. If you see what I did there, as you can explain our breakdown of what we're covering this week. But as always, the Jay is super pumped up to be here on What's Real with Hey Elot and the Wizard. And I'm ready for episode 81, like I am every week. Hey Elot, let's do the damn thing. We got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Of course, as we mentioned on last week's show, we're going to be talking about a really interesting video game series that is on Netflix right now. It's called High Score. This week, we're going to take a look at the first three episodes, and you'll see the next three next week. Uh, That's not it, of course, because HBO's Hard Knocks is back. NFL football is getting back in gear. And so are we here at the What's Real podcast. We're going to talk about the first episode. And of course, we have some Thursday night prime action. This week is a doozy because it combines forces of Gary Daniels and the power of the ultimate warrior. We're talking firepower 1993. And... I know I usually leave the pumptitude to the J, but I'm right there with you this week, the J, and you know why, because this week we are getting a double dose of AEW because we're going to Dynamite and the debut episode of Rampage. So we're going to tell you guys all the things on the menu for those two shows. So the J, you know how it goes, brother. Let's just get right into it. Unfortunately, uh, like so many of our shows, We are starting out on a low point this week. Uh, We unfortunately have three people here to mention in memoriam. Uh, First up is uh, none other than Marky Post. Uh, Many people might know her from the days of Night Court. Um, Hard to believe that she was 70 years old because I feel like I've never seen Marky Post as an old woman for whatever reason. Um, But of course, if you guys are a connoisseur of all things 80s, and of course, that's the decade where me and the Jay were pretty much raised in, you'll remember Marky Post. So unfortunately, we must say once again, rest in peace, Marky Post here from the What's Real podcast. Yeah, so sad, coincidental that uh, just last month, July 11th, Charlie Robinson from Night Court, uh, Court, who played the court clerk, Mac, had passed away. And, uh, you know, that's another one that just brings you back, man. We always talk about these pop culture uh, references here on the show and being in our forties and all that dating ourselves. But I just remember night court being on as a kid, you know, it's one of those things that, that just brings you right back to, to being at your parents' house with night court on. And it was just such different times, man, in the day and age of streaming services. And one of our favorite terms, Hey, oversaturation back in the day, we had like three channels. Uh, We all watched the same shit, you know, night court was one of them. And as John Lorquette, who I love, uh, as an actor uh, said, because he could say it best about his uh, the 
passing of his friend Marky Post. Her grace, her warmth, her intelligence, her compassion, her optimism, her empathy, her humility, her love and devotion to her family, and her flawless comic timing, her beauty, her laugh, and more. So uh, as the Jay always says, rest in power, rest in peace from the What's Real family to Marky Post. And you know what? I also saw this too online. Uh, Marshall Warfield, who was known for being one of the bailiffs on the show, um, posted on Facebook that she had gotten the news um, and kind of shared something that I thought was pretty cool. Uh, She said they both shared a love of game shows and they were on set playmates. And one of the things that they would always play on, on set was the game Password. And she's like, before you know it, we had other people joining in. She's like, you hear actors say their cast were a family, but on Night Court, the whole crew was family. I was adopted late, but I never doubted that I was family, too. Uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. But she said, my deepest heartfelt condolences to all whose lives they touched and may their families and friends be comforted with the knowledge that there are millions of us. Good night, Marky. The password is sad. So I thought that was really nice. Um, just oh, that's a, a great. interesting way of putting it. Um, but as me and the Jay always say here, you know, rest in peace, specifically from us here at the What's Real podcast. And unfortunately, that's not it. Uh, the, the world of football, specifically college football, lost one of its absolute giants. The man that turned the Florida State Seminoles football program into a complete powerhouse in the United States. I'm talking Bobby Bowden. Uh, passed away at 91. Um, even though I was not a big Florida State fan, I will say this, the Jay, we grew up in the era of Florida State football when they were at their absolute pinnacle. And that's solely because of somebody like Bobby Bowden. And, uh, you know, 91 years is a pretty good run, but he had such a profound impact on the game and especially college football that uh, he more than deserves a mention here on the show. Oh, of course. Legendary, man. And that's the thing, especially as you get older and you garner that word respect for people. And, you know, you grow up just having certain people as rivals to the teams that you're a fan of and things like that. And again, just aging here and just uh, respecting other coaches and players and even teams and things like that, Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, it's just a game. You know, especially as a fan, it's not like we're, you know, former NFL players or whatever, you know, so it's like, man, you just got to respect people like Bobby Bowden, uh, as you mentioned, a full life to 91. But nonetheless, the second winningest coach in Division One history, a career record, hey, you know, retiring with a 377, 129 and four career coaching record, 377 wins in, in high level football. I and mean, that says it all. Absolutely. So, of course, once again, rest in peace from us here at the What's Real podcast. And you know what? I said three at the beginning of the show, but I should have said four. And I'll explain that in a minute, too. Um, Another rest in peace uh, this week is from uh, for Bradley James Allen. Now, this is a name a lot of people may not recognize. And that's actually the way it should be. I did it at first. And then I looked into it, of course, because of my man hate you. Well, I mean, whenever you think about this, the Jay, it makes sense that he would be somebody that wouldn't be known. And this is why uh, this is from IGN's Twitter. The Jay was cool enough to pass this along. Bradley James Allen was a prolific martial artist who studied, studied under Jackie Chan and notably faced off against him in the spectacular final fight scene of Gorgeous. He's also coordinated stunts for some of Hollywood's biggest films, such as the Kingsman series and Sang chi Um, 
So, of course, when I said that you might not know his name, that is done specifically on purpose uh, because they don't want you to know who the people are necessarily behind uh, the scenes for this type of stuff. They do a lot of double work and they do they show up on screen fighting a lot more than what the stars in these movies do. Um, Not necessarily Jackie Chan. He studied under him. Um, But of course, just somebody that uh, is much more than just a cog in the wheel. These guys are extremely important in the world of filmmaking, as I know you will attest to the J. So it's sad to see another person like this uh, lost. And uh, he obviously had, had left a mark on the people that he worked with because, you know, I've seen some really nice stuff online about him as well today, too. When you talk about Hollywood stunts in your top three, you got to talk about Jackie Chan. And this guy worked hand in hand with Jackie Chan. And, uh, you know, that that just says it all. Nothing more needs to be said than, than being Jackie Chan's right hand man in the world of stunts and stunt work. And uh, that's the thing. We had another life that, that could have been uh, a life of the J. You know, I've delved into my little indie stunts and I have so much respect for the high level guys, of course, like with anything. And, uh, you know, our director, Damien always wanted me to move out to Hollywood uh, again in another life. He thought, man, I would be a great stunt man. But uh, again, the re- the realistic aspects of it, and of course, maybe in my younger days, pulling some stuff off, but the- these people, uh, literally risk their lives. And a lot of them have died on set and let alone the, laundry list of injuries that they suffer in their careers and things like that. And, and like you mentioned, they're behind the scenes, you know, but for, for a certain personality, that's always a good thing. And that's what Damien would always say. He's like, dude, the stunt man's the best life. You live the Hollywood life. You make great money. You're inter- intermingling with all these people. You're in huge Hollywood films, but you, you get the anonymous side of it too. Nobody knows who you are. Like you were mentioning, Hey, you know, they're, they're the, the completely behind the scenes uh, people, but, but yeah, I love that world um, of stunt coordination and stunt men. And for, for badly James Allen, who was a highly prolific stunt man passing here, definitely thought it was worth a mention and a shout on the show. And again, as we sadly have been saying here in the opening RIPs, rest in peace to Bradley James Allen. Absolutely. And unfortunately we're not done there. And this one is very similar. Now, uh, Chucky Thompson passes away. And I know a lot of people were like, okay, well, who is Chucky Thompson? And I can guarantee you that you might not realize his name, but Chucky Thompson probably had a vast impact on your life, especially if you're around our age. Uh, Thompson was a native of Washington, D.C. He got his start playing for Chuck Brown's legendary go-go band, The Soul Searchers, before landing a role as a member of The Hitmen, a group of in-house producers at Bad Boy Entertainment. There, he worked alongside Mary J. Blige, Usher, TLC, and more, and produced hits including, but not limited to, Big Papa by The Notorious B.I.G., Craig Max, Flavor in Your Ear, Can't You See by Total and Faith Evans, Soon As I Get Home. These are major, major hits, and prior to his death, he was, believe it or not, working alongside Shania Twain on Love Records and was in the process of filming a documentary about his life. Um, this is another one of those people where it's like the name isn't a household name, but his work is household name stuff. So of course that deserves a mention here as well. And from us here at the what's real podcast and me specifically, uh, rest in peace to Chucky Thompson. 
you, you know how it is, Hayad, if, if you're like a behind the scenes person and somebody finds out that doesn't know you, uh, that you're in the music industry. And, and what, what do we talk about? Again, having to reference my own personal experiences, being an independent film, people like at first ask you like, oh, well, who's in your movie? Who'd you work with? How much money did it make? All those kind of questions. And Chuck Brown here could just say, oh, I worked with Mary J. Blige, Usher, TLC, the Notorious B.I.G., Craig Mack, Total, Faith Evans, Shania Twain, you know, and it just says it all. Uh, a cool thing from, you know, looking into his passing with some articles and things, uh, you know, young uh, guru was was shouting him out. Oh, yeah. Um, he was a big mentor to him, called him his big brother and, and was taking this loss really hard personally. Uh, but uh, within that article, it states that Chuck was working on his own documentary. So yep. I'm hoping that that can be completed eventually. And that would be really something to check out. And just another tie in here. I don't know if you're uh, knowledgeable of this or not. Young Guru is actually Guru from Gangstar's son. And if you listen to the show, you might not recognize the name Gangstar, but you hear it every week whenever you listen to the show, because that's what's the real, what's, what's real, real theme. So, oh, yeah, baby. Shout uh, out there. Absolutely. So. Now, with that being said, the in memoriam segment of the show is kind of passed on and we can talk about some more fun stuff. So rest in peace and let's have some fun. Hey, you but definitely shout out to all those great people. Absolutely. So this is kind of a, a double headed uh, segment here for this, or I should say a headline specifically. But it's more of a question for you, the Jay, because we got to see the very first uh, NFL action of the new season, even though it was only preseason. And I'm talking, of course, the Steelers versus Cowboys Hall of Fame game. Um, now, I know it's a little bit early. You know, you don't always get a good look at everything. But the J impressions from the first game. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's definitely my first and foremost disclaimer that uh, the first very first preseason game of the entire NFL, not even just the Steelers and Cowboys and it being in the Hall of Fame game. Uh, it's really tough to, to tell much. Uh, Nigel Harris, you know, he had his first few carries. He looked uh, pretty he solid, ran, I thought. For what Yeah, we saw. I mean, you know. Again, that's that's kind of what you're gonna take out of a, a initial running backs game. You know, seven time seven rushes for 22 yards, including a, a six yard on his first carry. So, uh, you know, run of the mill stuff there, but looking good. You know, it's definitely uh, gonna be a, a unique thing to see his growth in his rookie year. Here, uh, we mentioned a big thing that's gonna go hand in hand with, of course, anybody that knows football is gonna be the play of the offensive line, which was another thing that I was trying to pay attention to, but it was really tough to you know to what? really tell, you know, what was going on there. I was trying to pay very close to the offensive line too. And what I did see is something a little bit different than what we saw last year. Uh, if you watch the Steelers last year, they had a ton of offensive line problems, especially when it came to the run. Like they were getting stood up by defenses when that should never happen. Um, it looks like their philosophies on what the offensive line is going to be doing this year is significantly different. I did see them. It kind of reminds you, you know, the old uh, the five man sled drill in football. Oh, yeah. That's what it reminded me of. And it's, you know, I, I don't know because it's just the first preseason game. But for what I saw in that game, I do like to see that there was a little bit of change in philosophy. Uh, it's still a little bit early on, but for the first preseason game, I was satisfied with what I saw there. Yeah, I think we were discussing the the new offensive line coach is is pretty good, and uh, that was going to be a big aspect of if he can 
get this line to play better than anticipated uh, because I feel like they did show some promise uh, against the Cowboys. And and like we keep having to say is the asterisks. This is the first preseason game, but you know, nonetheless, the guys are going at it and they, they played better than anticipated from what I was kind of thinking going into this. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, I would move on to say going with the offensive line as well is the quarterback play. And uh, they didn't allow a sack to starting quarterback Mason Rudolph. So it's another positive thing from this. He unfortunately did have a fumble in the game, though. Um, right. I just and here's the thing. He actually had a really good series, I thought. Um, he couldn't get him in the end zone, which seems to be a problem for him. Uh, and I'm not going off just this game. I'm going back two seasons from the sample size I've seen him play. Um, I will say this. Uh, I was very happy to see Dwayne Haskins get about three quarters of action, about two and a half quarters. Um, he looked solid. Now, I wasn't blown away by anything that he did, but I will say this, dude, and it's very early, you know, sample size and all that stuff. I do like that this dude seems to throw rockets with very minimal effort Um, because I feel like when you have that type of arm strength, if you're coached right, if you kind of learn certain things in the game, the other stuff is going to come. You can't teach arm power like that. So at the very least, I like him better than, than Rudolph just because of that alone. I feel more confident with him throwing down the field than I do with Mason, who to me looks like he's running on eggshells every time he's in a game. Right. That's yeah, a good comparison. Uh, yeah, Haskins was definitely efficient. 8 of 13 for 54 yards while leading the Steelers on their first two scoring drives. And the big thing here also, as we know, with a quarterback and game management and, of course, the big one, turnovers, uh, he did take care of the ball because a yeah. big, you know, scary thing from him coming from Washington and because his first two years, he did throw more interceptions than touchdowns. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the big reasons why, you know, they got rid of him. And obviously, besides the attitude problems and things like that, but I mean, it is early, but I've heard nothing negative uh, about him so far. It seems that the coaches feel really happy that he's there. Um, They seem it it seems like he's on the field and taking it seriously, because if they're you know, this as well as I do, the Jay, you might be able to fuck around and do weird shit in Washington. That shit's not going to fly here. If he was acting a fool here, there's a good chance we'd have already seen him cut and they'd probably have another backup in here kind of getting snaps. Well, that's the thing. Next on the list here is Josh Dobbs, who looks all right. And he has the most at stake because, you know, when the regular season begins, one of those guys is going to be on the practice squad. So he doesn't have any room to fuck around. This might be surprising to some people here, but I'm just going to say something. It's still early again, but. I would not be mad if at the end of the preseason going into the regular season, we see Ben starting, Dwayne Haskins as the backup, with Josh Dobbs as the third, and Mason Rudolph is no longer on the team. I would not be mad at that. I know a lot of people probably would, and I I think it's highly doubtful that the Steelers would do that, but I think that those three quarterbacks would be better than minus Dobbs and, and keeping Rudolph in there. That's just me. Now, my, my take on it with Rudolph is that we don't really see the intangibles with him. Yeah, I that agree. The two other guys could kind of uh, possess possibly. And that's the, the big thing there. Like he's a decent game manager. I mean, he showed that he could play in the NFL. 
uh, not to any ridiculous degree to this point or anything like that. And not as a starting quarterback, though, either. I, no, I agree. He, he hasn't proven that yet. Yep. Exactly. So, but yeah, all, all this kind of uh, offensively gave me some decent semblance of hope. I mean, we looked okay, all things considered, like we keep saying, as far as being the first exhibition game. And I will say this too, and this is probably the only person that I'm going to say this about because, you know, for various reasons, you don't get the best look at players. But do you know who I was consistently impressed with during this game was rookie punter Presley Harvin Jr. Uh, he's notoriously known for being about five foot 11, 260 pounds. Um, this dude is going to be a folk hero here in Pittsburgh. He was the best punter in college last season. And dude, he had some really nice punts in this game. And if it's any indication of how he's going to play, then it's been nice to know you, Jordan Barry. Yeah, yeah, I think it's Presley Harvin the third. Hey, y'all, he's a. Oh, would I a say third, junior? Thirder. Yeah, my bad. But no, no big deal, man. Um, but yeah, yeah, he looks great. Like you said, it's a perfect kind of guy in Pittsburgh to have like the big punter. Uh, we would always love to have had. Uh, why am I brain farting from motherfucking Plum? Um, that's now the SmackDown color. Oh, McAfee. Pat McAfee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like that type of player. Jeez. Early brain farts here. It's not a good sign uh, early on in the segments. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, the reigning Ray Guy Award recipient, which is, uh, as you mentioned, the best punter in college football, uh, having that one right on the one liner, like the nose of the that football was, was there. And in a 51 yarder. So yeah, looking good, man. He stood out and, and you know, that's a, a part of the game too. That's, that's a lot more than uh, important than I think a lot of people realize. So having a rookie punter that's looking like this off the bat is definitely another one in the positive column. Hey, and that's something we've seen in the past because when your punting game is completely off, it could fuck up your whole season. And we could tell you stories from more than one season where this ended up being the case in the past. Special teams is huge. Yeah, it, it ruins the whole game sometimes. It can, and it can win you games sometimes, you know. It's, right, it, exactly. There's a reason why it's, it's you know, focused on the way that it is. Um, but, of course, as we said, this was the Hall of Fame game. And, of course, you can't have the Hall of Fame game without the Hall of Fame induction uh, ceremony. And this year we got a double dose because they re- made up for last year. So we got the 2020 class and the 2021 class. Um, I'm sure you at the very least saw some highlights of this. I don't know how much you watched. I did watch both nights. And dude, in the first night, this was why I love being a Steelers fan. Because we saw it looked like a home game. Uh, It was Pittsburgh-centric all the way. Because we saw Donnie Shell. We saw Bill Cowher. We saw Troy Polamalu and another Pittsburgh connection, Chicago Bears lineman Jimbo Covert, former star for the University of Pittsburgh. So it was a very Pittsburgh heavy night on Saturday. And dude, wow, was Polamalu something else? I thought Donnie Shell did very good. And I also thought that Bill Cowher did a very, very good job. So it was really nice to see that. But dude, I was so pumped for Troy, man. That's like, we've talked about this. That is my favorite Steeler during my lifetime, without a doubt. And most of the people that I'm friends with say the same thing. He was as special of a player as there has ever been in the National Football League. Completely concur. Hey, you know, we love Troy here. His speech was awesome, you know, referencing how the black and gold culture is and should be. And, uh, you know, he had the the line 
of if a former Steeler comes up to you and says, you know, you could have played with us, you know, basically is like what you want to hear from, from donning the black and gold. And, and as you mentioned, Bill Cower was the main event of the entire induction weekend and he did a great job and he was always the man. And uh, as I mentioned in the past, I got to meet both Troy and Bill Cower. And that was very special to me, you know, personally, and they're two awesome guys in real life, which is always like just icing on the cake as a fan. Of course, because, you know, the whole you don't want to meet your heroes thing. But both of those guys are, are good, good guys uh, to meet in, in person and uh, just legendary. And it makes you proud to be a Steeler fan and to be from Pittsburgh. It's one of those things. Dude, we we're pretty. I don't know. What's the what's the right word here? We're pretty aggressive about being fans of the Steelers. And I don't mean me and the J. I mean, like just Steeler fans in general. But. Whenever you watch that on Saturday, that's why we're not talking shit just to talk shit. We're not acting like we're a better franchise than we are. We always win and we don't or whatever. Like we have the legacy with the team and you know, as well as I do the Jay, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but for those listening who do not live in Pittsburgh or, or aren't familiar with this or anything, this stuff runs extremely deep. And I always bring this up because I think it's funny, but the Jay, you'll remember this senior year in high school time for the yearbooks to come out. Right. And we didn't know they did this, but they, I guess, contacted everybody's parents for baby pictures to put in there as like, you know, just an add on to the yearbook. And it was so funny because I remember we were all kind of looking through it and it's like every kid, boy and girl in Steeler shit from head to toe as a baby because this shit just runs super deep in the city and you almost don't get it if you're not from here or you haven't witnessed it for yourself but I implore anybody if the Steelers are ever in the Super Bowl come to Pittsburgh see what the city's like it's like on fire because of stuff like that and it's a really special thing and of course you always want your team to win but dude, whenever it's like that here, it's like this city's not better than then. That's how that's when the city is shining. It's just good to be proud of where you're from. And that's what it comes from. I mean, we've said before, even in the whole larger scheme of things, being Americans, like we're not saying that we're better than anybody by having American pride. I'm not one of those people, you know, that puts us ahead of other cultures and other countries and things like that. And it's the same with being from Pittsburgh and our city. But all that said, when you're born and raised here, it's just, it is your culture, you know? And it, and again, it goes to say that we're not, I'm not sitting here proclaiming like the Steelers are one of the best franchises ever. Uh, you know, that's just an opinion, but when you're born and raised here to like what you're describing, Hey, uh, it's just a different thing. And it is very tough to describe because somebody, you know, just not ripping on anybody in particular, I'm just using an example, like say just some, from some random place in the Midwest that's not a sports fan might just do that kind of shrug it off. Like that's ridiculous that your life revolves around sports kind of mentality. But I think like you're saying, it's more than just the sport. It's the camaraderie and it's just that tribal thing of having something 
in common, even with strangers, just because you're from Pittsburgh. And that's what you were describing about if somebody was to come into Pittsburgh that around when we're in the Super Bowl, because you'll see that. All it takes for two strangers is to have a Steeler jersey on and you're hugging, you're high fiving, you're having beers with people, you're just bullshitting like they're your best friend and you literally don't even know them. And that's there's something special about that. Absolutely. And dude, this uh, this brought up a memory and it's it's a good memory, even though it's sad now, but it's still a memory. And I wanted to bring this up to you, the Jay. So. The first Super Bowl that we ever saw the Steelers win was when they beat the Seattle Seahawks. It was Jerome Bettison's last year. And I remembered I watched every game that year with my dad and a friend of ours uh, who is unfortunately no longer with us had a party and I skipped the party to watch the game with my dad. And I'll never forget this. We won the game, of course, like me and my dad were super happy. I cried like a baby um, because I was so happy and I left my house then and then met up with everybody at the party. And it's just a good memory now that when I think about that first Super Bowl win, I, of course, think of watching all the games with my dad and I hold that, you know, important to me. And then unfortunately, our friend that has passed on that that's a great memory, though, that like that night we were all together and we all celebrate like we were running through the streets and people are blowing horns and we're not in directly in the city we were in the suburbs at the time but it doesn't matter because the whole city was on that wavelength and it was just i'll to me the jay i don't know about you but that is my favorite season of nfl football that i've ever watched because of the outcome because of the way that i got to watch the games and just the first time getting that feeling of like we finally fucking did it like after a lot of years of disappointment and a lot that was the first one in our life that they won so we waited 20 plus years to see that like i will forever hold that that season as one of my absolute best sports memories if not my favorite sports memory of all time very special because like you said, you had tears of joy. And as a child, I remember we lost that playoff game against uh, San Diego oh. on the goal line. And I cried like a baby with tears of sadness as a kid. And I, I had the, you know, those are those teachable moments and learning lessons where my dad gave me the whole speech about, you know, not taking it that to heart and things like that. You know, it's a sport. Those guys are going off to Hawaii. You know, they're millionaires. You know, you don't have to cry, but that's the kind of pride and how into it you are, especially as a child. And uh, also we experienced together as always shout outs to, to Russ and Runk and Goo, our, our buddies that are brothers. And we watched the infamous Super Bowl against the Cowboys in the mid nineties that we lost. Yep. And I'm not proud of it now. And I apologize here on the What's Real podcast <laughs> to whoever's car it was, but I was so pissed. I ran outside and did a snook a splash onto the hood of a car because you're just so crazy, you know, at those times. That's a little bit older and being a teenager and how you react. And and as you mentioned, it all led to experiencing our first Super Bowl championship with the city. And, and it was just an amazing experience. And to go in with all of that, hey, Ed, that's, that's the thing about it. I am so blessed and fortunate and grateful to have so many memories watching Steeler games yep. from regular season games to playoff games to the Super Bowls with friends and family for, you know, 
being a, a fan since I was four years old and being 41 now, man, I mean, you're talking closing on 40 years of memories surrounding Pittsburgh football. And that's what it means. And that's why it's beyond the game and all that kind of stuff that a lot of people might not understand. Dude, you just nailed it because that's the thing. Like when I think about Steelers football in my head, I don't just think about great games and great, you know, plays and things like that. I think about watching games with my dad, watching games with my grandpa, watching games with my friends, going to games, uh, like, you know, just all those different because like it's just the same topic. But I can I can think of a thousand, you know, Thanksgivings in the past and Christmas days in the past and, you know, just all kinds of stuff like that that just bring back a ton of good memories, all that are associated with with Steelers football. Exactly. Yeah. I'll just shout out one last one because you reminded me uh, just to get it out there that. Typically, we do Christmas with our families in a certain way. Like I think a lot of people do. I mean, everybody's different, but you know, having different families through your your mother and father. You know, you spend you know one half a Christmas day with one side of the family, then you go visit the other one. That's what we always did traditionally. And this particular year, a few years ago, because of certain circumstances my wife and I actually hosted our one and only Christmas that we've ever hosted with the whole family. And that just so happened that it was that, that day we played on Christmas day a few years ago against Baltimore. Yep. And, you know, talk about memories, man. I'll always have that memory. Uh, it's just an amazing memory of hosting our, our one and only Christmas, having my entire family over, you know, 30 some people, family members, and then the Steeler game coming on and just watching it with everybody and everybody, like you said, just being in such a happy, happy mood, man, just puts you in a good place. Absolutely, man. So really good weekend of, of NFL, uh, just entertainment in general. So I, I, I like that a lot. I always think that that's such like a nice way to kick off the season. And I'm glad that they still do it that way. And uh, even though it was pretty cumbersome this year, it was still really cool to get the two different days of the Hall of Fame stuff. Of course, we saw plenty of other fantastic players go into the Hall of Fame. Of course, Peyton Manning, Edron James, Megatron went in, uh, you know, just on and on and on. Tons of great players, you know, great weekend of football. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a great way to kick off the season. So, but... Well, and that's a good, this is a perfect place real quick, hey, you know, before we get away from it, to throw in that little kind of cool stat that I had sent you on how crazy it is with uh, specifically, as you mentioned, Megatron, oh. Calvin Johnson getting into the Hall of Fame. So I'll give a shout out to Michael David Smith on Twitter, shouted out by our, our man, uh, local Pittsburgh DJ uh, on WDVE, a personal friend of ours, Bill Crawford, uh, who reposted it. Uh, so listen to this, football fans listening. So Calvin Johnson's freshman season at Georgia Tech was 2004, the same season that Tom Brady won his third Super Bowl. Then Calvin Johnson finished his college career, was drafted, played his whole NFL career, retired, and is now in the Hall of Fame. And Brady is still playing, coming off a of Super Bowl. And dude, just to add on to that too. Crazy, crazy. There's only two players in the history of the National Football League who were younger when they went in the Hall of Fame than Calvin Johnson. Jim Brown and Gale Sayers. Like, dude, when you're, like, I just said that, that gave me goosebumps. Uh, that's some, yeah, that's some rare yeah, air. That's dude, sure. that's exactly what I was about to say. You're 100% right. 
So moving right along, and this is unfortunate that we have to bring this up, but I I have a a, a reason to bring this up other than just basic bitching. But Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson noncommittal on the COVID vaccine after getting it for the second time. Um, Now, we could go on and rally and, you know, people are idiots for not getting the vaccine, but that's actually not what I wanted to talk about here. I wanted to get your opinion on this today just to see what you think about it. So a lot of people like to tout the personal personal choice when it comes to the vaccine, but that's not exactly the way it works with the NFL this season. See, if a team has a breakout because of an unvaccinated player and a game cannot be made up during the season, the team will forfeit and both teams will forfeit their game checks. So this is not just affecting Lamar Jackson. So my question to you is the J as far as just your thought process here. How do you think his teammates are reacting to something like this? And he's not the only one because we've also seen Kurt Cousins act the same way. And we've also heard that his coach was extremely angry. And so was the Minnesota Vikings owner. We haven't heard that much information about Baltimore, but the J Put yourself in that locker room. Would you be thrilled with a teammate that puts your financial? And keep in mind, he might make significantly more money than you do, but it doesn't matter to him. Uh, based on my beliefs, you know me, hey, you know, I would be extremely disappointed. Um, it's it's something that I always tell you, man, I, I am a very open-minded person, and there's, but there's certain things that it's tough for me to wrap my head around. Uh, I, I see varying angles in, in, in a lot of things. I don't just jump on one side or anything yep. like that. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I will say in Jackson's favor as we talk about this, because I can go in a diatribe about the negatives, of course. So let me go the other route for our discussion where I, I think he had some semblance of, of a good point. I'll put it that way, because last December when he first was diagnosed with having tested positive with COVID, he did say, that he wouldn't wish COVID on anybody. And he reiterated that recently and expresses how terrible it is. As we're talking about, though, he still wouldn't budge on whether he would get the vaccine, even when pressed on that. And and, and as we're mentioning, the thing about it affecting his teammates and other people, not just himself, as it puts the Ravens at a competitive, competitive disadvantage. Uh, but this is what I think was some semblance of kind of seeing where he's coming from, at least, hey, Ed, where he said, I feel it's a personal decision. I'm just going to keep my feelings to my family and myself. I'm focused on getting better right now. I can't dwell on that right now, speaking about the the vaccine question, how everybody else feels, just trying to get back to the right routine. So that's something that I've said to you in the past that he said here, it's a personal decision because it is, you know, you have the freedom to decide what you're going to do. However, I think what we're both reiterating and kind of stating here is that it might be a personal decision, but it's a personal decision that affects a lot. There of you go. People. Yep. And that's why it's a messy scenario as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's pretty measured in a, in a fair response. You know, I mean, the exactly the, the thing that does piss me off and this isn't Lamar Jackson. Okay, there's other players that we've mentioned here on the show uh, in weeks past with this kind of stuff. Um, I don't like if you want to do it, that's your decision. Okay, but these guys that are boldly telling people not to do it, that's bullshit because you're not 
you know, if this guy was telling me how to train for a football fucking game or a, you know, how to lift or something like fine. Okay. That's their wheelhouse. Um, but I'm not going to listen to an NFL player giving me health advice. I'm just not going to do that. Um, these are dudes that also throw their health to the wind for significant amounts of money. Um, and I kind of made the comment to somebody recently and I didn't not about Lamar Jackson, but another player and I'm, and they were, they were saying not to get the vaccine. And I'm like, yeah, because I'm the, the person I'm going to listen to on a vaccine is the guy that has zero problems mashing his brain into mashed potatoes. Like I'm sure he has a great outlook on health and people's health, especially when they're not multimillionaires, you know, it's it. And here's the thing too. Somebody like Lamar Jackson can play that game. He has plenty of money. His family's most likely taken care of. Um, but a regular person doesn't have the choice. They might have to work and deal with shit anyways, and they can't afford to get COVID because if they do, they're going to rack up ridiculous medical bills where somebody like Lamar Jackson doesn't have to worry about that. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think the biggest issue is is misinformation and ignorance and, and things like that. And like you said, just going to the wrong data verification sources, the wrong information, you know, verification sources for information about an extremely important thing. I mean, right now that's the most important thing quite obviously going on in the world to, you know, like we mentioned, man, we don't want to diatribe. We want to have fun, but um, I think it's important to talk about while we're here. And it's, again, it's not a a political slant at all through Ed and I, I, I feel like we're just giving our opinions on the current state of the world, everybody being within unprecedented times of trying to get out of a pandemic. And it's been going on for a year and a half and we're still not out of the woods by any stretch. And when you have statistics where a country, our neighbors to the North Canada are somewhere in the 70 percentile of vaccinated individuals. And we're 20 so percent or more behind them somewhere in the fifties. That's, I think where we're coming from where again, so many other people are affected by the decisions of others in this situation. And when those decisions are being made from again, just uneducated scenarios and a lot of, of, Uh, situations. It's just uh, a scary thing. And dude, the thing that really bothers me here too, and this is a little bit outside of the the Lamar Jackson stuff. It really seems like people took the dumbest, uh, less road of resistance type of lessons from the last year. Like the shit that they learned from the last year is not important stuff that they should have learned. They learned really stupid shit and weird stuff that really doesn't benefit them or anybody else. And that really, to me, sitting here today, how, you know, 17 months after this all began, that's what really, really is befuddling to me. Like the the institutions that didn't seem to learn a lesson, the, you know, the government bodies that didn't seem to learn a lesson the typical citizens that didn't seem to learn anything over the last year. It's really ridiculous. And it makes you wonder with a lot of people, like did most people just bury their head in their sand or and and just watch fucking Netflix and ignore the world? Or were people paying attention to the things that they should be paying attention to? Because where we sit today, I really don't have an answer on that. And that's pretty sad if you're just being honest about it. No, I agree. That's, that's a good way to put it. It's, it's just a sad thing. And, uh, again, as as an optimist and somebody that hopes for the best, I'm just hoping that things can continue to improve 
and maybe people will come under the realization, you know, if certain things happen within their life that changes their perspective and things like that, that we can start turning this thing around. But right now, that's why I mentioned those um, statistics, because it's just uh, a fact that we're behind as far as that goes. And all of us want to be able to have the freedom that this country provides. So let's start acting like, you know, we can get there together. Cause that's, that's the thing, man. We have to work as a, as a unit, as a country, as a people. And that seems like the, the biggest problem right now is just so many butting heads. I mean, you know, again, not to diatribe, but just going into Twitter and things like that, which as we've talked about personally, Hey Ed, both of us are pretty good at avoiding, but you know, if you just stumble upon that, which is easy to do, you just see so many just vile, people and just like, like you were kind of mentioned, just the people that are the best way I can, can put it kind of just lost in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. You see a lot of that. And I don't know what the answer is to that or why that's necessarily happening with so many people, but it's, it's always kind of been a little bit of the underbelly of the internet. But I think that once social media, like Twitter and things like that exploded, that it just like kind of dumped all over that too. And now it's like, it's a different thing. Like I, I think a lot of kids and younger people are starting to see that and kind of being like, Oh, I'm going to do that. Where before that wouldn't have really entered their head or it wouldn't have gotten to their mental space until they were older going into certain places online. So I don't know. I'm not trying to play old man. And it's like, Oh, social media is bad for, for you. But it, it kind of is in the way that a lot of people use it on a day-to-day basis. So right again, it just that, is that- what it is that misinformation aspect of it. Uh, but to, to counter all of this in a positive light, Hey, we could kind of wrap up this portion of the variety hour segment, uh, with this one where head coach Lane Kiffin, uh, at old miss uh, on people says that his team is a hundred percent vaccinated against COVID, you know, and the quote is like, it feels pretty amazing. Uh, his entire team was vaccinated to ensure they would not forfeit any games this year. And it, it's like, to me, it's, it, it really is that simple. You know, yeah. uh, it's, that's the headline right there. A hundred percent vaccinated. Pretty amazing. We don't yeah. have to forfeit Kud- any games. Kudos to them. Absolutely. That's good. Good job for old miss for being able to pull that off. Um, dude, this is another story here. That's uh, just weird and, and kind of sad, frankly, uh, this is straight from the LA times. Bam Margera sues jackass forever team alleged discriminate, alleging discrimination and unlawful firing. Uh, so Bam Margera is suing Paramount Pictures, MTV Networks, Johnny Knoxville, Jeff Tremaine, Spike Jones, and others, alleging he was discriminated against and unfairly fired from Jackass Forever so that the studios and the producers could steal the movie franchise, his attorney said Monday. Uh, Margera also wants an injunction against the film's release, which is currently in post-production scheduled to hit U.S. theaters on October 22nd. The 41-year-old performer's firing was reported by TMZ in February of this year, uh, though according to the lawsuit, Paramount filed, fired him in August of last year. In February, he posted videos in which he discussed previous suicidal ide- ideation and slammed his jackass cohorts for shutting him out of the stunt-focused movie. Um... Margera admitted to consuming wine and beer before making the videos. TMZ reported a day later he was uh, getting help from a doctor specialized in bipolar disorder. Um, And he's also had some issues with substance abuse in the past. Um, 
put it this way, I, obviously we don't know, you know, what happened. We're not privy to any of this information behind the scenes. If Margera is still all screwed up and that's why he got fired, I don't blame them. It's sad that he's in that position at this point and is not getting the proper help that he needs. Um, now, on the other hand, if Margera has been sober and trying to do well and these guys somehow, some way just ripped him out of the series, that sucks. So either direction that you have on this one, it kind of sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's just sad. And, and you hit the nail on the head as you do. Hey, you the nail on the hate you. Um, we don't know either side uh, specifically in the behind the scenes of it. Even in the article we had pulled up, uh, as you mentioned, from the LA Times as reference, uh, they said that reps for Tremaine Knoxville and Dick House Productions did not respond immediately to requests for comment. However, I did see in a past interview when it was brought up to Knoxville, because I'm a big Johnny Knoxville fan. I have too. I think yeah, I know what you're about to talk about, actually. I think and, I see and, the and same it's one thing. Of those, it's one of those funny things where it, it's so funny how we go full circle without even meaning to on the podcast, even here in the opening <laughs> segment, talking about the the stuntman that passed away. Because again, it goes into to my appreciation for stunts and stunt work. And as you know, being backyard wrestlers, we did a lot of the jackass kind of stuff before yep. we even saw jackass and things like that. And obviously, as we always say, man, just all due respect. We're not saying we're up there with them, uh, you know, in their content. It, it, but it's just so cool and talk about another you know, memory thing with, with uh, Jackass coming out in college, you know, and I just oh, yeah. a ton of memories watching Jackass. All that said and done, uh, Jack, Johnny Knoxville did mention basically that he, he didn't want to even talk about it and that he just cared about Bam getting better. That was me paraphrasing in the gist of it. You know, he was kind of just saying, look, I'm not worried about the lawsuit and things like that. I just want Bam to get better. And I have read numerous things that they really tried hard because they had an intervention with uh, Steve-O when yeah. Steve-O was, was completely succumbed to his, uh, addiction. And Steve-O at, at this point has been sober for years and is living his best life, if yep. you will. So, and, and again, man, this is, this comes to a personal situation with both you and I who have dealt with addiction um, on our own level with a mutual friend. And that's kind of what I see through yep. this. And as yep. we disclaimered, I don't know the behind the scenes, but looking through it, I just feel like it's an addiction issue. And in my opinion, and again, it's just my opinion from, from what I've read and, and my feelings on it and perspective that his friends just want him to get better. And they kind of had to cut him out of this. Uh, as you said, not due to trying to get money out of him or save money or anything like that. I don't think that had anything to do with it. I think they're just worried about their friend. And I think the biggest thing here is the addiction that Bam Margera is dealing with. You know, I seen a video uh, on Facebook just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it was from Thrasher Magazine, which is a legendary skateboard magazine. And uh, they post videos all the time on their different skaters and different things. But the thing that I saw was, there was a local like skateboard company that basically has this warehouse where dudes would go and skate and Bam Margera was there with them all trying to get his legs back and trying to get back into skating because he, he's like, I've been in such terrible physical condition. I haven't really been able to do it properly for years, but like I miss it. So I want to do it. He seemed like he was much better. Um, you know, like really working hard. Like he's, he's apparently been trying to get his weight down and stuff like that too, which is absolutely necessary for skateboarding. 
Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it seems like he's on the right path. You never really know. But obviously, uh, regardless of the situation with the lawsuit and stuff, I personally hope that he gets better because, dude, I know a lot of people uh, through the years, well, not personally, a couple personally that have had some some run ins and things where dude was really good to people and would help people like if you do you remember viva la bam the tv show that he was on after jackass was a huge deal so on the show he had this house out behind his parents house that was built like a castle and i saw a podcast that he was on maybe about a year or so ago do you know what that cat what that castle what the condition is and what it's being used for now no no idea it's still a house and a lot of his friends live there. Um, he basically had that that house set up with no keys. It's all through punch code entries. So what he would do is like when anybody was coming to town, like maybe other skaters or bands that he likes and they were torn, he'd be like, come stay at the castle and he would give them the punch code. The punch codes never changed. So he's like, I have a bunch of friends and stuff that are just always staying there. So he created like a flop house in there for friends and bands and skaters and shit like that and i thought that was pretty fucking cool too so it kind of shows you that like you know he might have been blowing up cars and doing stupid shit back in the day on that show but a lot of that stuff was for show dude apparently made a lot of money through the years and spent a lot of that money on his family and friends and he seemed to have a ton of problems unfortunately after his friend and jackass cohort uh ryan dunn passed away in a in a drinking and driving accident years ago yeah, and that's that's the problem again with addiction is that the you know you, you kind of get two different people. It's the the addict on substances, and then when they're not, you know, and they're the person you know and love, and and it's it's just a tough tough thing to deal with. And as we do fact checking and things like that, just to be completely on point here, hate you when I was bringing up and kind of paraphrasing what Johnny Knoxville said. It was actually out of a, a GQ interview he did. And uh, he, he really didn't want to talk about it, as I mentioned, but he did say a few things. And he said, we want Bam to be happy and healthy and get the help he needs. We tried to push that along. I think that's all I really want to say about it. Later adding, I don't want to get into a public back and forth with Bam. I just want him to get better. And that's what I was kind of saying earlier. So I feel, I feel like they're, they're just worried about their friend and you get to a point there's only so much you can do. Absolutely. So uh, this is something that I wanted to bring up. This is a personal thing for me that I was so happy about that it like all, I almost cried because I'm legitimately that big of a fan. Um, I've grown up as a fan of hip hop since I can remember. Um, it's not the only music that I listen to, but it's one of the primary ones through my, my life that I have listened to. And one of my, it's probably my favorite hip hop group, I suppose of all time is De La Soul. And it's been a very sad state of affairs for De La Soul fans and maybe people wanting to introduce other people to their music because the majority of their catalog is not on streaming because they had a deal for years with Tommy Boy Records and Tommy Boy was kind of holding their masters hostage. And there was a bunch of new stuff that came out a little over a year ago about this stuff and then it went completely silent. Um, this is amazing. As of Saturday, August 7th, and after years of being taken advantage of by the recording industry in the worst possible ways, De La Soul now owns all the rights to their masters as in full control 
of the amazing music that they created, uh, which Taleb Kohli wrote on Instagram. So you can, it's very possible that we're going to see their absolute classics show up on streaming services, which I am fucking thrilled for. I can't wait. I've purposely not because the only place you can really listen to these albums right now is if you have them and on YouTube and on YouTube, everything is ad protected and it's uh, revenue that goes to Tommy Boy Records. So like they ask people like, don't even stream our stuff on YouTube if you're really a fan. And I didn't. I've been waiting over two years at this point to listen to some De La Soul. And it looks like it's finally going to happen. And I'm so fucking happy about it. This is so awesome, man. Let's let's not go on the the Jay soap, soapbox against corporate America. But we've talked about it in previous podcasts, how brutal the record companies are and how just screwed over artists get and everything stemming from things that wouldn't be predicted by people. You know, Napster opening up. Uh, you know, shared music. And, and of course, then of course, with everything and entertainment with the streaming services, it kind of got even more messy and things like that. You know, we, we know Prince went through this. Oh, That's yeah. why, you know, people think that he was all weird for changing his name to a, an image and, and whatever he was doing. But meanwhile, That's you get why. older and you, yeah, you get more information and you realize what's behind it. You know, he felt like a slave to the, the music companies and, and this is his art and they're owning it. And it's, that, that word I hate, hey, yeah, more than anything, you know, that greed, you know, it's that oh, fucking yeah. greed. Like these artists deserve to own their their music that they created and made. And, and it's just ridiculous. And dude, so this is just a step in the right direction for sure. This is even a step further than that. And this is why. And I'm glad you brought up the Prince thing because Prince was one of the biggest artists of all time. But Warner Brothers records were a significant record company before Prince was signed or anything. I'm not saying he didn't help them because he certainly did, but they were a major label even prior to Prince. Okay. Tommy boy built its name off hip hop and specifically people like De La Soul. And they were able to turn that into a very successful company that would go on later, many years later and sell the company for hundreds of millions of dollars. So the people behind the scenes there of this little engine that could record company made a lot of money off it and were still being greedy with shit like this. It's like you hear a lot of stuff like this and sometimes it's eye rolling where people want you to do things for the culture. And it's like, oh no, people do things for money, not the culture. This is kind of where that means something to me because now people can go back and discover their music. Maybe there's been a young teenager or something that's heard about them for years, but really hasn't, you know, looked around for the stuff. Now it's going to be there. And that's super fucking important. And honestly, because like I said, De La Soul legends, right? This is so bad for their fucking legacy that a record company would treat them like this. And that goes for a lot of artists, but especially someone like this. It's like these guys are one of the forefathers of hip hop period uh, for the stuff that they did. Nobody was doing the stuff that they did. Even to this day, people never really did the stuff like they did. So for it to be available and for the, you know, they own and control their own destiny at this point. And all I got to say is rightfully so. Yeah. Well said. Hey, uh, um, as you mentioned, after decades of legal battles, they have control of their music and their celebrated back catalog of six albums will soon be available to stream on Spotify, Tidal, and Apple Music. I can't wait. 
So uh, this is pretty wild to see this one too, the Jay. I know that uh, I talked to a couple buddies about this, but I know I was talking to you about this a little bit uh, over the course of the last week. South Park creators, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, have basically gotten a $900 million deal from CBS Viacom um, to continue making South Park and to also branch out from it and make a few other things. Um, so Matt, or, uh, they, Matt Stone spoke with Bloomberg over uh, the weekend and broke down the pair's eye-popping new overall, overall deal. And he said the duo are going to use that money to expand into other arenas like a horror franchise, a South Park video game, and even a real-life weed business based on the fictional Tragedy Farms, which was introduced in the Comedy Central series 22nd season. Um, quote, we have a 3D South Park video game, release date unknown. We're doing deep fakes. We have a studio with a dozen people who are deep fake artists. We're working on a little more of this deep fake movie that we're trying to piece together, Stone said. We have a horror movie, a musical. I think we're read, really for the first time going to bring Tragedy Weed into real life. So these dudes just never stop, which is kind of amazing because frankly, frankly, if that was me, I'd be just sitting on a beach somewhere enjoying my money. <laughs> it's, I love these dudes. This was great news. Um, it's just unbelievable. It sounds fake. And that's why I love 2021. $900 million deal for the South Park creators. And uh, as it goes on to say even further than some of those projects that you were referencing, hey, you know, that their new pact with Viacom CBS's MTV Entertainment Studios extends their partnership through 2027. We'll take South Park through its 30th season and consists of a whopping 14 movies. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it goes on to say two of the upcoming 14 made for streaming South Park movies will debut on Paramount Plus in 2021 with two more rolling out each year after that. So, hey, man, we, we love these dudes. South Park's still on point. The most recent stuff they did was the uh, pandemic specials that freaking killed me. So, you know, the Jay I've been, you know, talk about as we always do got to do. The, the nostalgia, we go back to our buddy Guillermo, shout out to oh, Guillermo, yeah. ha having a freaking tape of, of the initial South Park episode, um, you know, like bootlegged back in the 90s. And we've been on the South Park ride ever since, you know, into our adulthood. So I love seeing this and I'm all for it. Absolutely. So just one more here before we take a break. Uh, uh, now, the Jay, this is something that I think we're going to get some uh some some carry out of here so in the past week 13 wwe nxt talents bronson reed bobby fish leon ruff tyler russ jake atlas mercedes martinez asher hale giant zangier zechian smith kona reeves ari sterling desmond troy and referee stephen smith were released and there was basically stories popping up everywhere saying there are major changes for the nxt brand on the way so according to a podcast, uh, this is uh, of the Matt Men podcast, there's been a lot of chatter on the NXT cuts amongst USA higher ups. One top USA official was said to be disappointed by the way things are going in the NXT brand. So, quote, the perception for many is that these upcoming changes will be negative. Perception means everything, especially when you're working with partners who are not pro wrestling fans and don't have deep knowledge of the talent. In reality, or yeah, in reality, are the changes coming to NXT a bad thing? Time will tell. 
So regarding major NXT changes in the works, PW Insider reported uh, that the changes include a new logo, new lighting, and a new look, a different format to the weekly USA Network TV show, and a focus on younger talent. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there was something that I, I was reading, and this quote really pissed me off. And it was basically that, and, and this is a direct quote here. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but the, you know, you'll get it. They're changing the way that they get talent from now on. And I read basically it quoted as saying, no more midgets, no more people over 30. And they're going to go back to more of a uh, training ground for superstars. So with all that being said, in my opinion, NXT is finished. There's really going to be no point in watching it as a developmental territory, in my opinion. Um, I think this is a huge mistake on their part. And frankly, it just seems like sour grapes to me. Like they lost out in the ratings to AEW, had to move nights, and they're just like, you know, fuck all this. We've had enough. You know, what I am most interested in, which we will never be able to get the inside on, is the behind the scenes with how Triple H is reacting to all this. He has because to be this pissed. article even, dude, it even specifically stated that WWE chairman and CEO Vince McMahon made the call on the cuts, but talent relations head John Laurinaitis and senior vice president Bruce, Bruce Pritchard were also behind them, not Shawn Michaels or Triple H. So I think, uh, you know, it's Vince McMahon rules all, as we said, for better or worse. We, we don't need to get into all that as we've been through a million times over. But this is one of the portions that could be considered on the negative side, uh, as you said, the way it's looking, where Triple H has had a successful you know, third brand, even getting to the point where we were talking about not too long ago. I mean, after we started the podcast, we talked about on the podcast, which we've been doing for a year and a half, how at certain points there it was looking like NXT was going to be just an equivalent brand. To Ron SmackDown. Yeah, yeah. Now that is just pretty much kiboshed, as you mentioned. Uh, there's one one way to it is like, again, always seeing both sides. Hey, Ed, you know, you can't just completely expunge it. Like, it's nothing that they have a good idea of the direction of NXT, the no more midgets thing, no one starting in their 30s portion of it. But then again, I feel like if you're going to go down this this road and change it this much, then as you mentioned, it's like the end of NXT and you got to just start from the ground up with something completely different. And you know what, too? I thought about something like this uh, when I read that goddamn no more midgets, no more guys over 30 quote. Dude, they are getting and, and dude, it's funny because I think you'll see where I'm going with this here. There's a lot of correlations to what I'm seeing right now that I saw in the past. And they have this way of totally, uh, like, almost getting pissed off that there's competition. And I don't mean pissed off at other companies and other businessmen. I mean pissed off at fans. So they do this. They, they rebel against it in the worst way possible because right now, I'm not saying that AEW is on their level because they're not. Okay, they don't have network television. They they or I'm sorry, they have ne they have network television. They don't broadcast television like you know SmackDown and stuff like the WWE does. Um, but they are gaining ground. They're getting better as a company, and 
they're going to be making money quickly. And this is a horrible time for you to basically figure out some new way of just shoveling all the best talent in the world over to them. Because if you're not 6'4", or you're 30, the WWE has no interest in you, and AEW is going to happily take all these guys. I th- And it's going to make their company even better. So they're going to have a better product because of it, <laughs> and show the WWE like, oh, you don't want the midgets and the guys that are over 30. Thanks, because look at the way we're booking them now, and they're moving needles, because it may eventually happen that way. And I feel like the WWE did the same thing years ago to WCW. And they didn't perk up until they got their ass kicked for 83 weeks. Now, granted, they won that war, but it's like, I don't understand where the air, why the arrogance even needs to be there at this point. It's dumb. Yeah, exactly. To that point, look who they end up hiring in the prime of it. You know, Jericho, Benoit, Eddie. Yep. And uh, Saturn, like, you know, the, the midgets. So it's just funny how it works. But I mean, that's just generalized discrimination, which is just so stupid for the WWE to do with the NXT brand, meaning that like, as you mentioned, like you, you have to be six foot plus and 29 or under to be part of this. Like it's, it's just, again, it's discrimination to anybody that doesn't fit that bill that, as you mentioned, could be a box office office attraction and a main character down the line. It's again, it's a generalization, which is stupid to do, especially in a big business. And especially as you were saying, Hey, at, at this time when, competition's getting pretty real. Absolutely. So it's going to be interesting to see where everything goes from here. Um, I, I know that AEW is definitely going to be interested in some of this talent. And dude, somebody brought this up to me too. And I thought this is a great point. Uh, the NXT releases are significantly different than main roster ones because the main roster releases, they got a 90 day non-compete clause. The NXT guys got 30 days. That's it. So, like, you could see a lot of these guys popping up on TV way faster than you expect to. Coincident, you know, co- coincides very nicely with a new hour of television with AEW Rampage. You better believe it. So, uh, but we are going to take our very first commercial break. And when we come back, me and the Jay are going to be talking about the first three episodes of a Netflix series all about the history of video games. We're talking high score. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. And three, two, one don't forget to join us next week for episode 82 of the what's real podcast we're going to check out episodes four through six of this really cool docuseries on netflix high score and of course what's real is going to aew as me and the j break down aew dynamite and rampage then we're going to join our boy narrator Leb Shriver with episode two of HBO's Hard Knocks with the Dallas Cowboys. And on the most action-packed segment in weekly podcasting, Thursday Night Prime returns with Cyborg from 1980. And uh, this is Herman James with the What's Real Podcast. As I've been doing each week, you guys allow me to do the ad. 
appreciate it, guys. For Goofs or Goofs, which uh, it's the 82nd one. Sorry, guys, I'm starting to... <laughs> Just put him, oh, put okay. him to sleep. Having, put him to sleep, the Jay. Yeah. Put him to sleep. Always having some back pain. Please. Oh, get him out of Jesus here. Christ. So, guys. You smell like Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal. Jesus. All that and much more Ugh. next week on episode 82 of the What's Real Past. It is time to get into a really interesting uh, series that we caught on Netflix, all about the history of video games. Uh, It's called High Score. So uh, we are going to take a look at the first three episodes this week and the last three next week. So uh, if you want to hear the whole thing, obviously check out both weeks. So here we go. Uh, First episode is an episode called Boom and Bust. Space Invaders and Pac-Man lead an arcade mania while Atari's cartridge system dominates home gaming until a notorious failure sparks a downfall. Uh, This one, you know, I'll be honest with you. At first, I was kind of disappointed because I'm like, well, there's not going to be much stuff here that I hadn't seen. Uh, They did that whole documentary about the E.T. game and how much of a disaster it was for Atari. But I was wrong. This one had a lot of really interesting stuff, uh, specifically with game designers. And one of the things that I loved about this one, they caught up with the the Japanese gentleman who created Space Invaders and also Pac-Man and also featured another company where these guys would create these, I guess, like updates where they would fix some of the bugs and problems that a game had and try to make them better. Um, these guys, I knew nothing about previous to seeing this episode and dude, this first one to me was fascinating because this is basically my first memory of video games between Atari and the arcades. And I, I just thought that was really cool. And I, I, it was way more than what I expected for like a 40 some odd, uh, minute, you know, show in this series. Right. And just to put it in our personal perspective with Atari coming out in the late seventies and us being born at the outset of the eighties there, you specifically in in 80, me at the tail end of 79, December 21st, 79, just that time frame, I remember being like four years old and close to being five. And I I've said it before on the show, shout out to my cousin, Johnny, who is like an older brother growing up kind of figure, you know, as my little bit older cousin, he was nine months older than me. And he introduced me to like so many things. And one of them was video games because he had an Atari. So that was the first experience. I specifically remember playing the game pitfall on Atari. Oh yeah. I I go back to that memory. And I remember when it was time for Christmas of 85, obviously as like a five-year-old, I'm not going to know what's coming out. And I remember like telling him like, I'm going to ask for an Atari. I want an Atari. And him saying, no, like there's the new things uh, called Nintendo. Ask for a Nintendo. So I didn't even know. I just took his advice and was fortunate enough to have parents and be in the position to to get Nintendo like the first year it came out in 85, you know. And uh, this, this just all brings brings me back to those days. But like you said, the cool thing about it is the history of it and how everything evolved from you know, famously Pong being just two, you know, two little slivers on each side of the screen with a ball bouncing between them. 
And, and that was like the first big, like popularized game. And then it just starts to evolve from that. And that's what the series will cover. But as you mentioned, hey, Ed, at the initial outset here with, with these first, you know, f- uh, few games that they're covering, like starting with Atari, I was just, you know, so, so into it and seeing, you know, how they were going to tell the story of, of how these things were basically invented. And that's what's cool about it. It's basically a documentary in a lot of ways about invention. Yeah. And basically how, you know, like they, they show you about the, uh, the starting, the, like the way Atari got started. And I thought it was interesting. He was like, back in those days, I had no problem getting people from Silicon Valley to come work for Atari because I told them that you can wear whatever you want. And he said, and I told them, as long as you get your work done, I don't care what your work hours are. Like, if you want to come in one day at noon, work till 10 o'clock. If you want to come in at 10, whatever. He's like, you're all adults. And I thought that that, to me, was probably the reason why Atari was so innovative because there was a lot of really smart people in computer programming and stuff back then that were just bogged down in like mundane work. And whenever you're in a mundane place with what you do, and then somebody's like, want to come work for a video game company and you can make your own hours and you can wear what you want. And we're going to like, let you be who you are and encourage that. I mean, no wonder why they didn't have a problem, you know, getting, getting employees early on. And uh, the one another thing that I thought was really interesting in this, too, is they show you the very beginning of, I guess, what esports would be now. They even kind of mentioned that. And I'm talking about the very, very first Atari tournaments and stuff like that. And I thought that was neat. And they specifically had on the person who was the number one ranked person in the world at Space Invaders. So. That was really a, a unique and cool. And she she is in turn also a developer. Yes. Yes. And dude, the one thing, though, that really got me on this one, like I thought all this stuff was really cool, but they uh, I, I don't have the guy's name in front of me, but they told the story of this man who was I mean, it's very I don't know this for a fact, but he had to be one of the first black programmers. Um, and he is the guy that actually figured out how to engineer different games for the same system. Because like you brought up Pong earlier, when you bought Pong, it was just a game and that's the only game it was. If you plugged it in and you play Pong, he's the guy, I think it was called a channel four machine, but he, he invented the technology so that there could be replaceable games and you can have a collection of games that all play on the same system. And he never really got his due for that kind of stuff. And that's, that is just like mind blowing to me because I'm watching this and I'm somebody that's a, a casual gamer now was a super gamer as a kid. And I'm like, I've never heard of this guy. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Some people just get lost to history, but that, that's what's cool in little docuseries and things like this, that they shout him out, you know, and tell his story a bit. And, and that kind of goes to to what my next point was going to be. Hey, you know, we talked about, the invention of video games that this covers. And that's, what's funny, like talking about perspective as I always do, I'd like to see like my, my oldest nephew, for example, that's 15, like watch this with him and and see his take on it because that generation is growing up with, you know, so, so much more evolved video games to the point that modern day, I have two different VR headsets at my house, you know, I mean, freaking virtual reality at home. You know, and and you know both are great, but in particular the newer one being the uh, Oculus Quest Two, and some of the games on there and experiences on there that are just mind blowing. To realize that 
Pong was a big deal back then. Just like with yeah. the advent of of film, and you go back to silent film, and and film didn't have sound until a certain year, and then sound gets introduced, and then you know famously with the Wizard of Oz, one of the first big films, big studio films to use color, and and before that, black and white was the only way you could see a film. You know, it's all this evolution, which is just cool to see, and it you know it starts off with Atari and just these little pixel guys like i was referencing pitfall you know it's just this little pixel guy you know that you jump over these pixel alligators and and it's just so barbaric as far as video games go in comparison to nowadays but again you have to remember and and i use that word so much perspective like the perspective of it in the late 70s there to have these games on television was a huge step alone yeah and that's what Absolutely. this kind of, you know, reinvigorates in me and, and, you know, especially at the outset, which, you know, then goes on, like you said, to tell a lot of cool stories between uh, Atari getting developed. And and as you man- mentioned, they basically headhunted people by giving them beer and telling them they could wear what they want to work. And, uh, you know, the stories that they told about Pac-Man and, and as you said, the competitions. And this was a really interesting episode for somebody that they kind of grew up on video games because, again, I go back to that. That's the cool personal perspective of the fact that this all started like right when we were being born. So we've literally grown up with the invention of video games personally. Yep. No doubt about it. So with the end of the first episode, we had Atari on a boom. And it looked like, though, however, with the failure of the E.T. game, that Atari was in some trouble. And then we came to the second episode. Now, this one's called Comeback Kid. A Japanese playing card company called Nintendo enters gaming and hits it big with Donkey Kong, then takes over home gaming with the NES or the Nintendo Entertainment System. So basically at the beginning of this episode, we're seeing how video games were labeled as a fad. Uh, they The Ataris were not selling well at this point, and it, it looked like America was kind of like over their obsession with video games. But in 1985, that would completely change. Now, of course, Donkey Kong was a game that was made prior to Nintendo. It was a pretty big uh, arcade game. It, I don't even remember this. It might have been out for Atari. I think it was an Atari game, actually. But once this game came about, and it was such a big deal, that it started to set up for a video game system at home, which they had in Japan. And people in America started to get wind of this, and specifically Nintendo of America, um, wanted to make this Japanese game system into a more palatable American version, which they did with the Nintendo. Now, I don't think I need to talk to anybody out there and explain to them what Nintendo is, like we all know at this point. But this episode shows you the pure explosion of that type of stuff. And they use this quote in here, which is one of the quotes I always used to bring up about Nintendo. If people want to know really how successful Nintendo was, there was a time in the 80s where people quit saying, do you want to play video games? And they started saying, do you want to play Nintendo? Yeah, and that's where everything really changed because Nintendo just took over from Atari. And again, that's that's the system that, that we grew up with until the advent of other consoles eventually, which uh, I think future episodes will get into, you know, like Sega 
in the next, you know, every generation, that's why they call it the next generation. Every yep. few years, the, the next console comes out with the, uh, you know, the technology getting bigger and better and everything. So, so yeah, but th- this was a cool one too. Uh, like you said, the Donkey Kong stuff was extremely interesting. They went through the whole court case, you know, Nintendo's legal case against Universal over it and things like that. There, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. As we continuously say in a lot of these documentaries and docuseries, the, the, the better ones for you, of course, are the ones that you don't know as many things uh, about and are, are more interesting to you. And, and that was the case with a lot of these things. Um, you know, there was the story they told in this one on the the world championships, you know, the Nintendo world championships. And that, that of course, made me think of that movie with Fred Savage, the wizard. If you remember oh, that, yeah. the whole yeah. piece around uh, Super Mario Brothers, was it three, I believe at the time? Uh, um, which, yeah, I don't remember if it was two or th- it was, I think it might've been two actually. Yeah, it must, it must right. have been, it must've been great advertising either way to, to do it like that back in the day. Cause as a kid, you know, you watch that stuff and that's all you, you want to play, you know? So dude, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show. I think I told you before, but I specifically remember going to see the wizard at the movie theater and you got a mini Nintendo power magazine as just like for going to see it. And I used to have that thing forever. I might actually have it packed away somewhere, but like, I remember that being maybe the first time I ever went to a movie and like, you basically got a free gift with it. And you're like all excited. <laughs> oh yeah. As a, you know, I'm eight years old. Like that's, I probably cared more about that fucking Nintendo power than I did the movie. Yeah. Cause they went on to, Oh, and, and just as we do fact check when we can, it was super Mario brothers three was featured okay. cause it, it, it wasn't out yet. So they like, they showed footage of it there, you, and, go. Uh, you know, as a kid in the eighties, that's like, we always say, man, free internet. You didn't get looks like that. So you'd go to the movie theater and pay money just to see, the wizard basically to get a glimpse of super Mario brothers three gameplay, you know? Yep. And, uh, yep. you know, just uh, again, cause this brings up so many personal things about being a video game nerd my whole life. But, uh, as you mentioned, Nintendo power was huge. I subscribed to that for a few years and like as a kid, you know, you'd always just look forward to, to get in that magazine. I mean, I still get magazines to this day in 2021, just because like the certain things just get ingrained in you, you know? And I was just one of those people, again, as a pop culture nerd, that there's some things that being in my forties still never left me. And, and it goes back to things like Nintendo power. And dude, one thing that they brought up on this one that I was going nuts about, and this leads me to a question for you. So they have this story about this gentleman who was 17 years old and basically found out that Nintendo, who was local to him and he didn't know, was hiring. He goes to the building and he tries to get a job thinking he's just going to be working in a warehouse. But instead, he applied for a job to be a Nintendo game counselor. I had forgotten all about this. But back in the day, as the Jay said earlier, we didn't have Internet. And a lot of times and do Nintendo games, even to this day, their difficulties out of this world compared to the stuff that we see now. Um, but when you were stuck, they used to have a line that you could call and talk to one of the experts. Then they would talk you through or try and help you with this kind of stuff. Um, I'm sure you remember this back in the day, the J, but you know what I'm going to ask you, brother. Did you actually ever call them? That's one one of those few things with all the shit that I've done. No, I never have. Have you? No, I do remember it. The reason why I remember, and of course, it's not uh, for me, wasn't without trying. 
but it was it wasn't like a pay call. Like it wasn't a 900 number or anything like that, but it was uh you know a uh what do you call it like a long distance call so there was no way i'd be allowed to do it I exactly that's yeah my it dad was never else. yep that wouldn't fly in my household back then either and as as my reference article states as, as we do give it out the the reference tilt.goombastomp.com uh but they mentioned how like how hard it is to imagine that kind of job existing today of course you know sitting around at your super nintendo making your link to the past maps and acting as a surrogate big brother to befuddled young gamers by helping them out over the phone yeah <laughs> so. that's that's all we had back then you know what i mean and dude that was one of the selling points too of nintendo power magazine when it first came out because it would have tips and tricks and codes and different things to help you out with certain games. So there was a time period where that stuff was like essential for not just gamers, but just kids in general. So, and you know, they used to always do stuff too, where they would give out free, like three month subscriptions and stuff like that. So I never subscribed personally, but as a kid, I had a bunch of Nintendo power magazines because of that reason alone. So that yeah. this one really took me back to when I kind of like, I, I, the first video games I ever played were on Atari, but I fell in love with gaming as a kid because of Nintendo. So it was great to kind of sit back and watch this episode that celebrates all things Nintendo. Yep. Yeah. And like you said, that's, that's really a big aspect for me. I just got to keep reiterating for this docuseries. It's just a personal perspective because honestly, I saw a lot of reviews of this on, you know, social media and the internet that, a lot of the people weren't too big on this docuseries, you know, thinking that it didn't really go too deep and things like that. But my personal first take on it was that I thoroughly enjoyed it because of what we're talking about. And, you know, maybe I am kind of biased in a weird way because of the way that I kind of watched it due to what you were saying, how it brought you back. Like that's what yep. I was kind of like watching this with like a, a grin, you know, by myself, just because like I was kind of remembering just all my days of gaming growing up. And, and like I said, my pre-fermentioned cousin and all the times that we had playing video games and, you know, me sleeping over his house and, and us walking up to the video store when you first were able to rent Nintendo games and all those. Oh yeah. That was huge. Picking the game out. Like, you know, yeah, it's just all those memories. And, uh, and yeah, when you're ready, I, I couldn't wait for episode three. Cause that's actually huge for the J because I'm such a big fantasy nerd. And it's also a big episode for me as well. So moving on to episode three, it's called Role Players. Uh, inspired by Dungeons and Dragons, adventure and role-playing games uh, introduce extraordinary levels of choice and complexity to players. Now, this episode took a step back. There was not as much video game stuff in this at all. It was mainly about Dungeons and Dragons and how that kind of explosion led to a lot of the things that we saw with video games. Now, I was looking forward to watching this one because I don't know if me and you have ever talked about this before, the J, but was there ever a time that you actually played Dungeons and Dragons for real? So that was one of the, the crazy things for my life personally is the fact that I never have. Because okay. as you know me, dude, it's so up my alley between being a, a huge board game lover as a kid and, and, and into adulthood, being a huge, as we've been referencing, a huge gamer since Atari and, and especially Nintendo and on. And then loving the even like correlation with stuff like uh, Choose Your Own Adventure. And yeah. those oh, that, yeah. that novel series and things like that. You would think 
that that would be right up my alley, but it's something, you know, mainly because I just didn't have friends into it. It was probably one of those things. It just yep. wasn't on my radar or part of my, by coming up, you know, my childhood. I actually did play a little bit. Um, I did have some friends that lived around me when I was like probably about 13 or 14 and they kind of got me into playing a little bit. And I'll be honest with you, this game was nothing like I thought it was going to be. I was really impressed with it and how much fun it was because it's a game like if you play these games, you get lost in them. They take a very long time to play. And I mean, like it could if you play once a week, it might take you four or five months to get through one campaign. And I'm shocked, honestly, that you never played it because uh, I don't know how much of this you're familiar with or maybe just from watching this episode. But there's a thing in Dungeons and Dragons called the Dragon Master. And that's basically the person who writes out the entire game. And you, all the other players play their game. So they're the ones that make up the creatures and the, the obstacles and the problems and the, you know, all this stuff. And the reason why I said I'm kind of shocked you never played because I know how creative you are. And you're like one of the people I know that would be like a perfect. I'm sorry, I called it a dragon. Yeah, exactly. master. It's a, it's a, it's a dungeon yeah. master. You'd be perfect <laughs> for doing that. Yeah, it's it's funny, too, with the, the Pittsburgh correlation uh, actor, Joe Mangello, who people might know from uh, Magic Mike and True Blood. He's a Pittsburgh native. He actually grew up in the area I currently live in Pittsburgh in Mount Lebanon. And he's this huge, badass Hollywood actor. And to this day, uh, he's a bit older than us. He's like in his mid 40s and he's a famous Dungeons and Dragons player. And I have him on social media, like on Twitter. And he's tweeting all this, the time about playing Dungeons and Dragons. Like he's, he's even played with the big show. He has like uh, yeah. celebrity games and stuff. So it's like really cool to see. And he has that streetwear company I always tell you about that's basically oh, yeah. inspired by Dungeons and Dragons. And, uh, you know, it's like fantasy streetwear that, that I got into, you know, T-shirts and hoodies and stuff. But, but yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that for me, you know, all my hobbies and interests and I pretty much am known by my close families and friends that really know me of, you know, finding my way into like anything that even remotely interests me. And that is one weird thing. I always thought that, you know, and I still to this day, dude, it's still plenty of time in life, man. At 41, I'd, I'd be down to, to hop in a Dungeons and Dragons game and, and see a bit about it if I had the opportunity, but, but yeah, it's to your point. Yeah. It's something that I think I would have loved, but I just, it just never, um, I just never had the opportunity. Yeah. If it, if the opportunity came for me to play again with people that I know or something, I would definitely take it. Cause I, I think I'd really enjoy something like that now. Um, as much as I did back then, cause it was always a cool night to get together with like a couple friends and like, you would play for like five, six hours in a row. And it's everything from like boring to funny to, cause like everything's an improv thing. Like, you know, the dungeon master yeah, is like, creativity okay, and imagination you, the whole time. It's like you walk up to a castle, you see an orc standing at the front gate. What do you do? And it's like, and that's what you, and like, you know, depending on the players you play with, they're like, somebody might be like, I'm going to go up and talk to him. And then another person will be like, I'm going to throw a rock at him. Like, you, I mean, that's what it is. It's a complete open world game. So like you could, and if you are too funny, you could be like, I'm going to go over and spit on him. And then like the dungeon master is like, okay, he pulls out a sword. It's a magical sword. 
and you have to roll your dice and they make it really hard for you to beat them because you were not supposed to go be a disrespectful asshole. You got to play like if you're not playing the game correctly, they can get you out of it very quickly. So, yeah, like if we'd be playing with our friend Ronk and you'd be like, hey, Orc, I'm going to get straight to the point. I'm going to S your D. And he's like, like, come on. The orc is a is a wizard and strikes you with lightning. Uh, you better roll six hundred on the dice, or you're dead. <laughs> like, you know what I mean. And meanwhile, the dice go up to like literally six hundred and four. So it's like you're not gonna do that, you know. But uh, but yeah, but I mean, three episodes in so far, this series is pretty interesting. I'm really really interested to see where it goes with the next three episodes. And you know, I didn't know what this really was going into it, but frankly, after watching the first three episodes, I'm like, okay, this is cool. I like this a lot. And I'm definitely looking forward to watching the next three and then obviously talking about it next week here on the show. Yeah, I mean, that's how I was. I I really enjoyed, again, like the invention and just pure history of the video game industry and a lot of varying cool stories for the first two episodes, all leading that for me personally, my favorite episode was definitely three because it was like the fantasy episode, which is one of the biggest, you know, genres I'm into. I mean, it goes back to the first full novel that I ever read as a child was The Hobbit, you know, and I remember my mom giving me a copy of The Hobbit and I read that entire book when I was like super young. I can't even remember the age and I was into fantasy ever since. Again, I like I was that type of person that was just ingrained with certain things as I grew up through childhood, like all these varying different things. Um, and, and this episode, episode three, really hit that because two things, uh, and, and we can wrap up, hey, that I wanted to um, mention before we move on and, and close out the review is one was the introduction of couple, married couple, Ken Williams and Roberta Williams, who are legends in PC video gaming and fantasy video gaming. And it goes back to shout out to, as we always do to our friends, my friend, Eric Vichich, introducing me to a series called King's Quest. And oh, I remember these King's were, Quest. Yeah, these were basically, they called them point and click games. It was like the point and click genre where the graphics for the time were some of the best of the era. And they were these huge adventure games where you had to solve puzzles by kind of just pointing and clicking your character around the world. And I just fell in love with those games to the to the point of uh, to this point playing the entire King's Quest series that has eight uh, parts to it. You know, there's it goes up to King's Quest eight, and then there's another parallel series series I wanted to shout out called Quest of Glory. That's a lot like it that I that I love, especially like my my favorite game among these of all time is probably Quest for Glory Four: Shadows of Darkness. I was in love with that game. Um, you're basically in like Transylvania, it, it, like a, a kind of Transylvania world. So there's like just tons of monsters. It's real gritty and dark, and I, I just love that game. And again, it just brings me back to some really good memories, uh, leading to another portion of this that was the artist that was the initial artist of the Final Fantasy series, which is huge, and created the characters for Final Fantasy 1. So, I mean, I'm even at the point where my dragon tattoo is based off uh, Jan- Japanese art from from the Final Fantasy series, and that's one of my favorite series of all time. So uh, I love that portion of it, uh, of course. And I would be remiss for some comedy, hate you up, because one portion of this had me dying, and that was Ryan Best, who I had no clue what was going on. They're talking about this uh, programmer, and they say that he lost his game, 
and he couldn't find it anywhere. He looked in all his old files and all this stuff and he could not find his game. And they go on to tell this story where Ryan Best was an openly gay man. And when he first went to San Francisco back in the eighties and he saw like how open and free the people in that city were and things it inspired him to create the first ever gay and lesbian video game. And it was just hilarious. It was called the gay blade. He even based enemies off STDs he had in college and they went into that. And I thought that came out of nowhere. Cause you know, my sense of humor, dude, I'm like, where did this come from? I was dying. Yeah, the it was rather unexpected. Blade. But you know, yeah. I mean, I think that's they kind of wanted to show you that with this episode, though, is like the the origins of video games and a lot of video games come from places you would never imagine or even think of. So I thought that that was kind of cool because they show you a little bit, and it's it's throughout this whole series. I thought they did that in the first three episodes where they're kind of showing you a lot of unknown personalities and stuff of people that are responsible for things you had no idea they were responding like even one person came up with it you just assume companies or whatever you know like but no it's like they actually tell you the people so i like that about this series i feel like you know like you said the people online weren't too big on it and maybe that'll change for me but like i was thoroughly impressed with the first three episodes kind of introducing me to a lot of people i'd never heard of in my life and kind of giving me a unique backstory on why they're instrumental in the history of video games that's a really cool thing to someone like me anyway yeah like i mentioned i i fully admit i might be biased just because it's completely in my wheelhouse this kind of thing but i i really enjoyed it and again like i i can get the criticism maybe that it's not as in-depth with certain things and, and and all that but that as I say, especially with the schedule I have and us covering it for the podcast, I actually like the fact that it was, as I always state, it was kind of a breezy watch. You know, like you mentioned, I think they're like 45 minutes ish runtime. So these all, you know, real easy watch to watch the first three episodes. I got through them really quick and enjoyed them. Absolutely. So of course, part two of this review will be on next week's show, episode 82. So join us for that. But we have to take a quick commercial break and we come back. Me and the Jay are going to take a look at the first episode of this season's HBO Hard Knocks. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Hey, Yins, guys, this is the Jay from the What's Real podcast for our official sponsor, Church Hill Pictures. Church Hill Pictures is a Pittsburgh-based film production company founded by Damiano Fusca and Jared Bajoris. Check out churchhillpictures.com for all kinds of information about the company and their work. The website contains dozens of videos, including short films, movie previews, comedy sketches, the entire documentary UCW, The Greatest Show You Never Saw, exclusive independent pro wrestling matches, links to view or purchase their two feature films, Deference and the Unsung, the entire history of the What's Real podcast, the Film City podcast, and so much more. Check out churchhillpictures.com today and also check out the official Churchill Pictures YouTube channel. Search for Churchill Pictures and please subscribe. Also follow Churchill Pictures on all social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities. And we're back. And 
And as we said before we went to commercial break, it is time to take a look at the very first episode of HBO's Hard Knocks this season, starring America's team, the Dallas Cowgirls. Yes, I mean that, the Cowgirls. America's team in air quotes, hey, y'all. Exactly. So, uh, but nonetheless, I think it is a a good time for Dallas to be on the show, um, you know, with some of the things that they have going on. And it wasn't really a big surprise if you've heard anything going on around the Dallas Cowboy camp. This episode was centered a lot around Dak and is, of course, their quarterback, Dak Prescott, uh, having one of the most horrific injuries I can possibly remember last season. And it's kind of about his return to form. And if you have heard the most recent news, not only do you know that it's his return to form, but it's also uh, the development of some sort of a shoulder issue um, that they were very vague about on this episode, which I would come to expect. But um, it's it's kind of funny, though, because you see the frustration with him over this and he doesn't like to be taken out of the practice and stuff like that. But it did kind of annoy me in a way that Jay, uh, because I, I was watching it with my girlfriend and I even said, like, you know, he's like, what the fuck? They're taking me out. What the fuck's going on? Like all this stuff to other players. And it's like, dude, if I was a, a linebacker or something that heard that shit, I'd be like, then fucking throw the ball by yourself. What the fuck are you bitching about, dude? Like you're in a red jersey. No one's going to touch you. I've been running fucking wind sprints since 830 this morning. And you're over here bitching because you got to take three plays off. Yeah, I mean, he, he mentioned himself. He, he said that he had enough sitting time last year, of course, with the injuries. Like I said enough. But yeah, I mean, the coaches got to do what they have to do. But that's why Hard Knocks is a great show, man. It's the insight of all of this. You know, you see how how heads butt. You know, you see the coach's perspective. You see the player's perspective. And that's why Dak's Dak. He's a competitor. Like, that was so cool because, you know, to kind of open the whole series and introduce uh, Dak in, in this um, Hard Knocks run, he was even talking about his injury and they're showing it, recapping everything, you know, at the very beginning. And yep. he mentions how when the injury first occurred, he's like, yeah, I, I, like when I tried to put it back in place and I realized that wasn't happening, it was going the other way. But then when you watch the replay and you see that, he actually does like kind of try to put his ankle back together. That's my, you know, my point is that's how competitive he is. And, and I think that goes into, you know, why he just wanted to practice every snap. But again, you got to kind of mature as as a, a leader on a team, you know, especially getting the contract you got coming off a, a, a year that you did with being out for injury as long as you were, you got to start listening to the the coaching staff and of course the medical experts on on what you need to do as well. Like we all get that competitive side, but there's there's always that balance we talk about. And I, I just got to say at the outset as well, hey, you know, for what's real here, this officially starts another handful of months of NFL talk as we'll cover hard knocks and basically the NFL preseason going into what we do covering the NFL season in fantasy football 21. So we both love the gridiron and, and the NFL, man. So I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely, man. I think it, it was, it's like I said, when we were talking, you know, earlier about uh, like the hall of fame stuff, um, like it's just this influx right now of like, it's the beginning of the year, like the, the hall of fame game, then the hall of fame ceremony. Now hard knocks is starting before you know it. All the other teams are going to start playing their preseason games as of like starting this Thursday, uh, which if you guys are listening to the show, I'm talking yesterday, um, 
So it's, it's really ramping up, man. It's that time of year. And you know, it's always weird because I always said this like years ago, like it's whenever you were still in school, it's like, this is the time of year where you start getting the pit in your stomach because you know, the summer's pretty much over and you know, that, that always sucked, but it was always cool though, at the very least to be like, yeah, man, this sucks. Like we got to go back to school. I'm not going to be ready for this, but at least football's starting. So it gives you something anyway, uh, or a little bit of a peace of mind, but you know, the one thing that I did think was kind of cool about this episode, uh, and it's one of the reasons why I like Hard Knocks so much, is because you start to see not just behind the scenes stuff with football, but you actually get to see on display like players and the relationships they have with each other. And I kind of figured that these two guys were at least remotely cool, but I didn't realize that, you know, Dak and and, and Zeke were such good buddies because like yeah, they best should, friends. Like, they're goofing around. He steals his bike at one point, which is pretty yeah, funny. They, and, they decided to exchange birthday gifts and Dak shows up. He's like, that's the last person I expected. He was like literally surprised. Like after he just wrapped the first time he ever wrapped a gift too. that, that, that was funny. Cause I do that shit too. I'm like the, you know me, Hey, you know, the Jay's a terrible DIYer like around the house. Cause again, I'm so busy. I run businesses. I unfortunately am not a normal person. I don't have time to sit on the weekend and figure out how to do like things around the house. God bless my wife. We find people. But my point is he was learning how to wrap a birthday gift watching YouTube. And I do that shit all the time with like everything. So I was laughing at that. That was pretty funny. Dude, two things that I know how to do, but when I have to, I immediately go to YouTube is wrapping stuff. And when I have to tie a tie, like I know how to tie a tie, but I'm always like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I doing this part? right? Like, let me watch this video just to make sure. Exactly. But dude, I mean, fuck, I know these guys are millionaires and they make a lot of money, but like, dude, do you have any idea how much that fucking bag Zeke got him for his birthday is worth? Oh, that's that high-end designer shit, man. Jesus Christ. I mean, you're talking, I wouldn't be surprised if that thing is literally five digits, like a $10,000, $11,000 bag. But you know how I it mean, is. Hey, you don't see in Dak's new contract. That's just, uh, as we always say, that's like 200 bucks to us. Yeah, it's, you know, these dudes, it's interesting, too, to kind of see, like, the one thing that I really liked about this one, too, and uh, it's because I actually think the dude's a really, really good player, and it's kind of interesting to see him from, like, the moments of him starting out as a rookie, but Micah Parsons is a, I thought that was, like, a home run pick for them, even though I can't stand Dallas. Uh, He's a Penn State linebacker. The dude looks like he's the real deal. And like in practice and stuff like that, they kind of show like, you know, like the little competitive nature, like he was going back and forth with one of the fullbacks and stuff. And, you know, like a lot of guys were giving him praise for like the work that he was doing out there. And there there was one uh, there's a point during the Hall of Fame game because he did pretty well in that game. You know, I, I remember that from watching it. But like uh, Evan Vanderesh is like, hey, man, you're out there trying to make all the plays. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, you got to learn when it's your play to make, though. You know, but that's a that's a good mentality for a rookie to have. And I think there's no doubt that uh, this dude's going to be a major player for Dallas moving forward. Well, he even retorts there. He's like, but I'm young, man, so I want to make every play, Mm -hmm. you know, and and, you know, the Jay, of course, being Penn State alum, always got to shout it out. Uh, Watched him play at Penn State for years. And yeah, he's a beast, man. It's got to throw out the classic uh, statement that we always make here on what's real. It's just stay healthy, brother. And and you're going to be a 
a fucking knockout rookie player and, and hopefully have a, a storied NFL career for sure. But he's definitely off to a good start, as you're seeing here on Hard Knocks. And, and that's what I love about it. Hey, you know, Hard Knocks, if you can believe it or not, started in 2001. So we're looking at 15 seasons of Hard Knocks. So I think this is the 16th, which is crazy to think about. And it was one of those weird things, like you said, like during the offseason and stuff and with so many different things distracting you and things like that. And, and I knew we were talking about covering on the podcast because it kind of takes us, you know, glides us into the NFL season coverage and everything. But I'm like, you know, I've seen so many hard knocks, Dallas Cowboys. Then as soon as it starts, as soon as I hear Liev Schreiber, you know, I just love this show, man, just because how much I love the NFL. So I'm right back into it and definitely enjoying it. You know, even even like the kind of behind the scenes between Jerry Jones. And and I think that was a, a perfect coincidence, too, not to hop around too much here. I'll throw it back at you. But the, the stuff that goes to head coach Mike McCarthy, who, of course, is from the Greenfield neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And he even shout, shouts that out about the family, you know, upbringing that he had to bring that into the team and how important family is. And he shouts out uh, his the zip code, 15217, uh, which was really cool. That's my parents' current zip code because they live in that area now. So always cool to see the home hometown stuff. But like I mentioned, coincidentally, it goes into the first exhibition game being the Hall of Fame game against Pittsburgh with Mike McCarthy. So that that stuff was all really cool to see. Yeah, and I'm I'm pretty petty uh, overall when it comes to sports. So I'm going to let that bleed into this right here because they show him, of course, winning a Super Bowl with Green Bay, which they won against the Steelers. Um, I've always thought McCarthy was kind of a dope as far as a coach goes, like there's the coaches like Andy Reed with the huge playbooks and guys like Belichick that are really like strategy guys. And then I always look at dudes like McCarthy is like the bumbling dolt meathead football player that is probably good at like uh, motivating his players. But when it comes to X's and O's, he's garbage in my opinion. And it's, I just thought that like everything that I thought, was correct and this kind of shows it because it's like he's just he has this weird like they do the mojo moment thing with uh that has something to do with austin powers and it's just like this thing that they do in practice it's just stuff like that like he just reminds me of somebody that would be a terrible head coach but would be like a really good line coach or something and that's just everything that i saw in this episode kind of just cemented the stuff that i felt that i already thought about him um, but then, of course, and this is a pet peeve of mine. OK, so you see, you know, during the course of this, right, you know, the guys are on the practice field and stuff. And then out of nowhere, here comes Jerry Jones and he's pulling McCarthy aside and he, what's going on with Dak and what's going on with this and what's going on with that. And it's like I can tell you for a fact with this, man, uh, whenever the Steelers have their practices and stuff, I'm just using the Steelers as the example here because it's you know, our favorite team. And I feel like we know more about them than we do other teams. Um, whenever the Steelers are practicing, the ownership's not on the field. That's why they hire their coaches. That's why they hire their coordinators and they trust them to do their job. And I felt like that's always been kind of a knock against Jerry Jones because he's always, you know, he's the owner, he's the general manager, but then sometimes he wants to play personnel guy and it kind of hamstrings his coaches. And one of the things that they showed that th this like blows my mind right here. And, and it's one of the reasons why I don't like him. So he's sitting next to Jerry Jones during the game. Okay. And, uh, and keep in mind, Jerry Jones is going in the hall of fame this year. We already talked about it. He's already in there, uh, but not when they're recording this. Right. So we know that that's already been announced and he goes, Hey, 
uh, we're going to introduce you into the ring of honor this year. And it's like, so the fuck what? He's going in the Hall of Fame. That's significantly bigger to anybody. <laughs> yeah, and, right. And, you know, I, and Stephen A. Smith, I saw a note mentioned this on ESPN today when I had it on earlier, and he made a great point. This, I was like, whoa, I didn't even realize that. Do you know when Jerry or whenever um, Jimmy Johnson coached his last game as a Dallas Cowboys coach? I can't recall the year offhand. Uh. 1993. This dude has been out of their team for 28 years and you don't put him in the ring of honor until the year he goes into the hall of fame. That's ridiculous. This dude won two super bowls and he's basically considered as the mastermind to turn Dallas from like a one in 15 team, the worst team to two years later them winning the super bowl. The it's, I don't know what the deal is like behind the scenes, but man, I've always felt that that has been super disrespectful because, dude, you were there at the time, just like I was. Jimmy Johnson was a fantastic coach. He's he's the best coach they've had in my lifetime. And yes, I'm including Tom Landry because when I was alive, Landry was not a good coach and Dallas was never any good. They were really good in the 70s, but they were not good in the 80s. And that's when I basically saw them. So Jimmy Johnson is without a doubt their best coach in our lifetime. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think there's something to that that we'll probably never know. But I mean, that would make sense for for that to take that long and just co- coincide with his Hall of Fame year for sure. There's something to it. Where, where there's smoke, there's fire. There, hate you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to mention some of my uh, other bullet points, maybe to wrap things up. Uh, uh, speaking of, because you had mentioned about Mike McCarthy and your kind of analysis on him specifically, where he might be, you know, better at being a coordinator of some sort as far as a head coach, and uh, that kind of made me think of Dan Quinn, who is the new defensive coordinator this year for the Cowboys who used to coach the Atlanta Falcons. And we were even knocking him in our past analysis on the podcast because the Falcons always had potential and he seemed to make a lot of bad calls. Uh, They famously, you know, had horrible statistics under Dan Quinn's watch as far as like teams coming back on them and points scored on them and things like that and losing huge leads and games they indefinitely should have won. But again, to your point with Mike McCarthy, I think that Dan Quinn looks like he might be a pretty good fit at defensive coordinator here. Uh, a lot for sure to prove nonetheless, but uh, just like an initial outset point, uh, I thought that was an interesting hire and it was interesting to see him here on hard knock. Yeah. You know what? That actually raises me to like another point. And I, I agree with everything that you just said um, with the way that the NFL is today. Um, now I'm not saying that they can't be good head coaches because we're obviously a, a, you know, the shining example of this. I don't think it's a good time for defensive minded guys to be head coaches in the league. Now, that's exactly what Mike Tomlin is. So I'm not saying that they don't have the ability to kind of fluctuate out of that. But that old school, like defensive coach mentality for your head coach doesn't work in today's league. You almost like the the thing now is the offensive guru, like the uh, Sean McVay's and guys like that. And then even a guy like Belichick, who is a defensive minded coach. He comes from the defensive side of the ball, but he's such a X's and O's guys and understands the game that, you know, sometimes when you're a defensive mastermind, it also sort of makes you an offensive mastermind, but that's rare. 
So, you know, right. uh, we'll see how that works nowadays with some of these coaches and stuff. And I just think that Dan Quinn's a really good example of the defensive minded coach that just did not work as a head coach because he's thinking too much defensively. And those Atlanta teams had really good offensive talent. So it's just uh, to me, it's kind of like a glaring example of my point and why I could be right about that. I'm not saying that I'm right, but it just seems that's the way the league is kind of tending to, to, to go these days. Well, it's a big thing. We mentioned uh, off air before speaking of the Cowboys in particular, where, you know, they're getting a lot of hype as well as they should. You know, uh, Zeke's not coming off the best year. It looks like he's in shape and and Dak coming back. But we mentioned that they had some of the worst defensive statistics. They were basically the worst defense, you know, again, at least on paper in decades, like literally in decades in the 2020 season. So that's a a big thing to bounce back from. And dude, I'll tell you what, this is just my line of thinking as far as this goes. I think they will be a better defense this year. I think Quinn's going to kind of shore everything up that they need to. And of course, with additions like a Michael Parsons, that's going to make them better. Um, But here's the thing. They will be a better defense, but most likely what Dan Quinn is going to do is get in a more simplified system for these guys, which will make them better. But this is where the problem comes in. They'll look better most games, but whenever they play the Tom Brady's, the Patrick Mahomes, like the really upper echelon quarterbacks, they're still going to carve them up because they're not really a better defense. They're just more simple. So even though it'll be a more consistently decent defense and nowhere near as bad as they were last year, the defense isn't complicated. So the real smart quarterbacks are going to pick it apart. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. So, so yeah, it's only the, the first episode. And as we even mentioned in our earlier segments coverage of the hall of fame, um, you know, exhibition game, long way to go. And it's tough to really, do any deep analysis this early, especially within exhibition. But as we say, covering the NFL from point A to point B through the whole season, it's great to get back into it and we'll see how it goes week to week. Starting off with uh, episode one here, hard knocks. Absolutely, man. I enjoyed the episode. I look forward to seeing, you know, how the season goes and it, it's pretty wild, dude. We say this every year. Cause I know we're both pretty big fans of the show. It's amazing how fast the season goes. They only have so many episodes and basically like hard knocks is over around the time of the last preseason game. And but, you know, it's going to be a little bit weird this year, too, because, you know, the Steelers and Cowboys, for example, play one more extra preseason game than the rest of the league. So it's going to be interesting to see how they hold up over the time and kind of like what the further developments are. And it's really interesting, the timing that works out, man, because of what's going on with Dak. We're going to basically see that unfolding week after week on the show. So I'm really looking forward to that, because even though I'm not a Dallas fan, I do think Dak is a really good player and I do enjoy watching him. So hopefully he can get back to health and everything and get back in there and get rolling the way that he, he, he was in years past because, you know, I enjoy watching him play as a player. So I'm looking to see, you know, how he does coming off such a gruesome injury. But I'm with you. Yeah, I hope he stays healthy. And it's going to be like you said, man, that's the thing. It turns around so quick. You know, we just watched that Hall of Fame game and you watch Hard Knocks and it's you know part of the package there at the end. So it's really cool how they do that. And that's why I love the show. 
Me too, man. So uh, that's it for the first episode of Hard Knocks. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Of course, we're going to be taking a look every week at uh, HBO's Hard Knocks as the uh, the season rolls along. But uh, we are going to take another quick commercial break. And guys, whenever we come back, it all gets started because what's real is getting ready to go to AEW Dynamite AEW, AEW, and Rampage. AEW. So we're going to give you guys a full preview of all the stuff that we know uh, that is going to be happening during those shows as soon as we come back from this break. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Check out DarksideDemonClothing.com. Two guys with troubled past, disturbed minds, fighting inner demons who are succeeding expectations of what people thought they could overcome. Now they want to reveal it to the world and help others conquer theirs. For t-shirts, hats, and more, check out DarksideDemonClothing.com. And we're back, and it is time, the Jay. This is going to be so awesome. So, as we mentioned earlier in the show and in weeks past, me and the Jay this upcoming week are going to be going to AEW Dynamite and the very first episode of AEW Rampage. So, what better time for me and the Jay to kind of discuss what we have on the menu, so to speak? Now, we're going to fast forward real quick down to Rampage because there's only been one match announced for that show. And that is an AEW women's title matchup between Dr. Britt Baker, DMD, and of course, Red Velvet. Uh, not too impressive of a match. I'm sure we'll have some other stuff on that show. But, uh, you know, not bad. I, I see Britt probably keeping her belt here, though, especially in her hometown. Oh, I, I see this completely. They're, they're getting Britt on in uh, a successful title defense against not the worst opponent, you know, maybe not the best. And at least they did give some semblance of storyline to it. You know, they've been kind of yep. feuding, getting into it over the last couple of weeks. So you have that leading up to it. So, yeah, I think that just, you know, gets her on the card, gives her a nice spotlight and gets her a nice title defense live in front of her home crowd. And of course, that is the very first episode of AEW Rampage, which is going to be every Friday night on TNT at 10 p.m. So definitely looking forward to that. That should be a lot of fun. I just love the fact that me and you are going to be able to go to the very first one that they ever do. So I, I just think that's really cool. And I'm glad that we have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, it's awesome. And, and they did they did announce it's definitely going to be an hour program, not a two hour program. Rampage. Yep, I believe okay. so. Yes. So now backing up a little bit, of course, to as we record here on a Tuesday, tomorrow night's AEW Dynamite in Pittsburgh. So here is basically the gist of the card. And then we could go through and talk about this stuff. Uh, We have a, a trios match to start with Matt Hardy and Private Party versus Orange Cassidy, Chuck Taylor and Wheeler Yuta. Also, we have Chris Statlander taking on Nyla Rose. The Good Brothers will be defending the Impact World Tag Team Championship against Evil Uno and Stu Grayson. Also, Christian Cage is scheduled to call out the Elite. And we have Chris Jericho versus Wardlow with MJF at ringside as the special guest referee in the fourth uh, labor of Jericho. So a pretty solid card to start out with the J. So let's just get into it here. Trios match. Hardy and Private Party versus Orange Cassidy, Chuck Taylor, and Wheeler Yuta. 
this could be pretty fun. Oh, that's exactly the word I would use. Hey, you know, it should be a fun uh, trios match. Nice little six man. Uh, last time that we did watch Private Party in Pittsburgh, they were really solid, fun to watch live. Uh, can do a lot of athletic things, as you know. Uh, Matt Hardy is always cool to see live. We know he's towards the end of his career, no matter what's going to happen. Um, God bless him. But yeah, any any chance we can get to see him live, still going full throttle is really cool. And of course, we love the... Uh, the best friends. And like you mentioned, you haven't seen orange Cassidy live yet. So that'll be an awesome experience. And Chuck Taylor is always good. I, I mentioned, I'm not too big on w- will or Yuta, but I've only seen him once. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And uh, you know, we'll see what he does to, to impress the J live. Oh, and there's another match that I forgot to mention too, that uh, isn't on this uh, page that I'm looking at, but another trios match uh, was announced where Dwayne Martin and the Sidal brothers are going to face off against Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. So that should be pretty cool. Uh, but next up here, let's just talk about this. Chris Statlander versus Nyla Rose. Um, I think this is a good match for them at this point. I also think it makes a lot of sense for Chris Statlander to go over because she's done very well since returning from her injury. And I think she's one of the better females on the entire roster. And it's time for AEW to start building her up as such because I think They've done almost everything that they could do with Nyla Rose for right now. And I don't think it's really a good idea to throw her back into the title picture or get her up in in that title picture. But I think Chris Statlander could absolutely fill in to be a a nice title defense for Britt Baker where we actually get a really good match out of it uh, as well. But yeah, I, I have no problem with this match. And I think that that's the general consensus of what this is being put together for. Yeah, if she's healthy, they got to give her the green light to start moving up the card. We've mentioned that's one thing that AEW really needs to focus on is building up their women's division. Uh, you know, you compare it. Yep. Compare it to like, you know, top tier stuff like NXT in its prime, and and even the the women recently in WWE's been been pretty strong. So so yeah, they got to get to that level. And uh, Chris Statlander, somebody they could help build that around. You know, with Britt Baker being the champ, like you said, is maybe the next big contender. Uh, Nyla Rose, uh, I know neither of us are big on her. We've talked about her before, but she has her place. She's a good heel. You know, they pair pair with Vicky Guerrero. I don't mind that all that much. She, they work well together as heels, so it's a decent act. What, what I'm really interested to see with, you know, talking about this matchup and, and Chris Statlander in particular is her kind of evolving and kind of growing her character because she does like the alien thing. But it's one of those pro wrestling ones that they do something creative and outlandish to kind of st- stand out. But then it kind of just hits a, a kind of ceiling right away on like what the character really is or means or can do. So that's something that I think she needs to figure out because I think there's potential there with the alien gimmick. It's something different and weird, which I'm into, you know, so I'd like to see her go, you know, get some, uh, some more ideas around that, but uh, you know, I'll be interested to see, see her live. And like you mentioned, Hey, it's, it's a, a decent women's matchup for AEW. And as I mentioned earlier, the impact world tag team championship matchup between the good brothers uh, taking on evil Uno and Stu Grayson. Now, I was kind of surprised whenever the Good Brothers won the Impact Tag Belts back because I just, you know, they had them on other teams and stuff like that. I just thought it was an odd choice. Um, But with everything that's been going on with this little feud that, you know, the Elite and Adam Page and the Dark Order have going on, um, this to me, and as soon as they said this last week, I believe on, on Dynamite when they announced the match, it struck me as like, 
this is the perfect time to switch these belts and get them on Evil Uno and Stu Grayson, who are a pretty good tag team. And, uh, you know, kind of keep the good brothers up, you know, where they're doing. Like, they don't need to necessarily be the impact tag champs. If anything, they should probably be on the radar fighting for the AEW World Tag Team Championships. I definitely agree with that assessment. And as I'm sure you would agree, hey, yo, I'm just pissed because Evil Uno and Stu Grayson do fine. Stu Grayson's really good. Evil Uno does his part. But I'd rather see him as more of the mouthpiece for the Dark Order and he brings them down and have Johnny Angi in this. Oh, that's my homie. I love that dude. <laughs> I can, Dude, that's one dude I will say this. Whenever he comes out, because I'm sure, you know, like we don't know everything that we're going to see, but we were kind of talking about this earlier today of the possibility of maybe seeing an AEW dark taping or an AEW dark elevation taping too, because we don't really know how they're doing all this. Um, so we're probably going to see Johnny get a match in there. And I'm a big John Silver fan, but you're going to see me acting a fool when, when he comes out. Cause he's definitely one of my favorite guys in the whole company. Yeah. He's, he's such a good character, but, but yeah, none, nonetheless, this should be a solid, uh, tag match, but I, I don't foresee the impact wrestling tag team championships going anywhere. I see the good brothers keep it. Okay. Also we have, it's been announced that Christian cage will call out the elite. And we were talking about this not too long ago on the show where it looks as if Adam Page is now out of the title picture for the time being. And Christian's going to be the guy that kind of gets slotted in, which I really don't have a problem with. But I think that this is the segment on the show where we have potential for the most things to happen. And I don't just mean storylines. I mean, potential for maybe a surprise for something else. But I, my eyes are on this segment because something is I don't just expect like a stupid pull apart. I think they're going to actually do something here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's going to be interesting to see what route they take because yeah, they could do somebody that's a huge surprise coming in, teaming with Christian to take on the Elite in some matches in upcoming weeks. They could do something like an in-house storyline thing where they bring on um, Frankie Kazarian's because he's been doing the Elite Hunter gimmick. So he teams with Christian Cage just for some tag matches for some TV for a bit something like that. But yeah, there's definitely potential there to do something cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see exactly what that's going to be. Uh, also, as I mentioned earlier, another trios match, Dante Martin and the Sadal brothers taking on Kenny Omega and the young bucks. If I had to take a guess the Jay, I'm going to think this is going to open up the show and I'm totally fine with that because you know, obviously I think Kenny and the Bucks win this one, but anytime you have Kenny and the Young Bucks in there with the Sadal brothers and Dwayne Martin's pretty good too at what he does, this should be a lot of fun, even if it's just a 10 minute six, man. Oh, I think it's gonna be really good. A lot of, a lot of bumping, a lot of high spots, of course. Uh, that's what the Sidell brothers do. That's what Dante Martin does. Is it Dante Martin? Or is it Dwayne? It's one or the other. Dwayne, is it? <laughs> so, uh, cause he's, he's part of that tag team. It's like the really young tag team, right? Is that the same guy I'm thinking of? Uh, yeah, it's Dante Martin. Gotcha. But but yeah, the bottom line is they're all high flyers and you can't go wrong with Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks still being in their prime, of course. Uh, so this will be a very entertaining match. And of course, and what I'm assuming is the main event of the evening is going to be Chris Jericho taking on Wardlow with MJF as the special guest referee in the fourth labor of Jericho. Um, I was a little disappointed that this was the matchup that we got because it, lo it looked like they were going outside of the company to get guys. But I will say this, a nice little uh, night for, for Wardlow, who is a local, uh, you know, since 
on going on to fame in, in AEW. But um, but yeah, it's a it's a huge night for him. He's gonna get to face Chris Jericho in his hometown. And I'm looking forward to that because you know, I think it should be a nice little match. I'm not expecting it to blow my mind, but this to me, as we know, is the storyline match of the night. And if anything is indicative from what we've seen in weeks past, Chris Jericho is probably going to get the win and we're going to get to witness whoever the last labor of Jericho is. So that should be pretty cool. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention. From my understanding, it's the five labors he has to pass to face MJF, right? Like MJF isn't the fifth labor. Uh, That's the that's my understanding. He has to get through five to get the match with MJF. So I got one question for you, Hey Yo, with us being there live and in person. Are you going to be uh, <coughs> clearing your voice and singing Judas with the crowd? But you know what? Probably. Um, even though I'm not <laughs> a big fan of that song, um, that's just fun shit at a wrestling yeah, show. Yeah, it's just fun to do. We'll have to do it. Oh, you only live once. When when in the Peterson Event Center, Center Hey Yo. Yeah, and dude, I've outside of like little indie shows that I've gone to, you know, since the pandemics, I've never been to this big scale show since pre-pandemic. So like I'm ready to carry on and act the fucking fool. It's going to be a lot yeah. of fun. Um, so hopefully we'll get, we'll have some stuff for you guys from the show. Of course, we're definitely next week on the show gonna, you know, kind of talk about it and our experience going and everything. And man, I'm really looking forward to this because I've never seen AEW in person and it is totally the right time for this. I need something like this right now. So it's perfect. Yeah, and on top of it, for those that uh, regularly listen, you kind of hear Ed and I's take about how we're handling the pandemic, uh, the Peterson Events Center and AEW. Um, I don't know the if it's the duo or who made the final call, but they are having all of us attendees wearing masks um, most of the time, you know, I guess other than drinking and, and eating and things like that. Yep, that seems to be the case. So as long as we could all get together and have a good old safe time to watch some wrestling, I'm all in. So too, and which... Yeah. Pun intended here with AEW <laughs> all in. Yeah, exactly. All so, in. so that's our little preview for our amazing, which I can only imagine is going to be an amazing week of wrestling fun Wednesday and Friday nights this week. Uh, so stay tuned, guys. We are going to take a quick commercial break and we come. Oh, I was just going to oh, say, dude, dude. I, oh, how do I not remember this? I got to put on a reminder. There's like a trio of cannibals running up my grass. Katie, get the kids. I I just got my hand cut off. My hand. I'm looking at my hand on the ground. Dude, I'm going to be there. I got a tourniquet. Okay. Thanks, brother. Yeah, we'll be back, guys. Hopefully, as long as we both survive this right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is it from the What's Real Podcast for Height Apparel, your one-stop shop for fashion retail. For one-of-a-kind shopping experience, stop by Height Apparel. Founded by Eric Walker, our business brand is based around people who are of average height, 5'10 and under. We will have the season's greatest fashion picks. Whether you're on the lookout for men's clothing or accessories, stop by and browse our latest collection. That's Height Apparel, H-Y-G-H-T, apparel.com. Again, that's HeightApparel.com. It's time for Thursday Night Pride. And we're back, and it is that time once again for Thursday Night Prime. This week from 1993, we're talking firepower. 
the J is back to get together in one piece. Uh, it was just a flesh wound. I don't know what the hell happened. My hand is completely fine. Um, kind of crazy. You didn't need uh, about. you didn't need to add a hook or anything like fucking Captain Hook. But uh, no. yeah, I got the the wife and kids safe, and we got away from the cannibals. And yeah, it's just funny, man. We get in the zone of covering AEW and the zone yeah. of the podcast and our Zen, and then it just comes out of nowhere. That's what people got to understand. Like, how how aren't you guys used to this after a year and a half? And man, it's tough. You know, you tried fucking having cannibals run up on your ass. You know, I'll tell you what, the Jay, I don't know about you, but I think you make a great point there. Next week, I'm fucking putting up with this shit. If this happens next, whatever happens next week, they're going to be fucking sorry. So if you're listening, whoever these people are, okay, like me and the Jay are going to be ready next week. All right. We haven't been ready yet, but we're going to be fucking ready next week. I promise Time to you. fight back. Hey, you and we're ready for this week because we're talking Thursday Night Prime and we have a fucking doozy for you guys on this one. And I mean it. And the reason why I kind of picked this one out is because I remember this one vividly from being on Thursday Night Prime. So this actually aired as part of Thursday Night Prime for sure. So and I love this, man. So this is a movie from 93. Here's our synopsis. In the year 2007, crime has risen at an exponential rate. Once highly populated metropolises such as Los Angeles are no longer inhabitable. These cities have transformed into hell zones ruled by violent street gangs. The hell zone, formerly called the zone of personal freedom, is a safe haven for criminal warpaths everywhere. This hell zone in LA is controlled by a criminal mastermind named Drexel. For the sake of entertaining his crowds of decadent losers and underlings, Drexel has staged a series of lethal, no-holds-barred matches in the death ring, where the winner takes all of the glory, while the defeated, one shall lose their self-respect and maybe just their head. <laughs> Meanwhile, two brave cops, Braniff and Sledge, must risk their badges and their lives when they enter Los Angeles's Hell Zone. Now, the reason why this movie stuck out to me and got on my radar originally is because the ultimate warrior himself, Jim Helwig, is in this movie. I was going to say, and, and it's uh, the beginning credits. It says introducing James Helwig. So that's, you know, you know, how Warrior's personality was. He's like, WWF has nothing to do with this. I'm, I'm going to be introduced as Jim Helwig to start my acting career. Dude. So I was laughing to myself like a motherfucker before I even watched this movie. So as I always say, I use letterbox, you know, and I, I throw it on my wish list and you can see the cast in the movie. Well, first up, this is super weird, but Chad McQueen is our lead character, Braniff. That's, of course, Steve McQueen's son and Gary Daniels, of course, Thursday Night Prime alum and one of our favorites plays Nick Sledge. Gary Daniel. And then I saw, I was like, oh, yeah, Jim Helwig, the ultimate warrior, plays the swordsman. Then I watched the movie and he doesn't play the swordsman. He <laughs> plays the swordsman, which is even fucking funnier. So at the beginning of the movie, we're kind of introduced to to the, the two policemen. And uh, there's also a, a black woman that's a fellow cop that is pretty memorable, even though she's really like only in the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie. She has some funny lines. There's some some good, you know, back and forth play here. 
But everybody in this movie is worried about the character, the swordsman. He's apparently this lunatic, right? And finally, we see at the beginning of the movie, they have arrested the swordsman. And they're bringing him to this precinct, which was a huge mistake because it's not high security. So they bring in the ultimate warrior, a.k.a. the swordsman. And, you know, he's a massive man. You can pretty much tell compared to the regular actors in the movie as such. But this, I forgot how fucking funny this scene is because he basically beats the shit out of everyone, uh, then gets put into a holding cell because they have this, like, instead of a taser, it's like a thing that immobilizes people. And so they put him in jail and he gets broken out by some underlings and disappears. So the two main cops are like, we have to go to fight at this thing and kind of get undercover and see what we can find out, which they do. Now, there's so much funny shit in the beginning of this movie. But, dude, this is really weird to say this for a Thursday Night Prime. So, in this movie, the effects are horribly dated. They weren't really great at the time, from what I remember. The movie's poorly lit, and the acting performances have a lot to desire. But it is (laughs) fucking crazy, though, how good this movie is. And I'm just saying for right now, up until they get to the fighting. I was fucking shocked at how good this stuff was. It's as cheap and shitty as it is. This stuff was great. I was like in my glory. Even they even added in a couple chase scenes to this movie. And the movie did not really have money for chase scenes. So they just shot everything fairly dark. And it still fucking works. Yeah, some explosions there. Ambulance blowing up. Yeah, I I mean. It's really amazing to me, first and foremost, at what they were able to accomplish with this movie. And even though some of the effects are really dated and don't look great, it almost doesn't matter. And it kind of fits in this goofy world that this movie exists in. And add in the fact that we did watch this on YouTube. So true. But I do remember streaming service cleanup or Blu-ray cleanup. And I remember it being a pretty dark looking movie to begin with. Um, specifically during some of the scenes that I'll talk about later, it stuff kind of popped in my mind, but dude, I was really thrilled with this one because I remembered a lot of stuff differently than the way it happens in the movie. So of course, as I said earlier, Gary Daniels, one of the Thursday night prime alumni, uh, plays Mike sledge. And I forgot how great of a character he is. And Uh, I believe he, he was the best. This is the first movie that made me fall in love with Gary Daniels for sure. Without a doubt, it's he has more personality in this movie than all of his other movies combined. It's pretty impressive and amazing. Yeah, yeah he's great. I, I just had to say off the, the bat here, I, I thought this might make you laugh because I don't know if you caught this one. Because as you always do, hey, yeah, you break down, broke down the synopsis. Great. Uh, but the one on IMDb that was just like the the like layman's terms. OK, synopsis. Yep. In the near future. Street gangs have their own city zones where cops can't go. Two tough cops are sent undercover in one of them to investigate an illegal cure for AIDS, but they must first fight in a death match and the match is fixed. Dude. Okay. (laughs) I'm so glad that you brought this up (laughs) because I was, I watched like the first 10 minutes of this movie and my jaw was on the floor. 
And this is why, because this is maybe more relevant now than ever. So they're sitting around in a bar and the news is on and they're talking about an AIDS vaccine. And they're like, and we completely eradicated AIDS by 1997. But the problem is now there are basically bootleg vaccines that are being made that don't cure anything. And it's because of one of these like gangs from, you know, the, the hell zone is, is doing this. And I'm like, I can't believe (laughs) how fucking chances of that. Yeah. Like, dude, what are you like? Like, dude, we live in the, the age of vaccine conspiracies and shit like that. And I did not remember this in this movie at all. And I was like, dude, this is one of those movies that's just a complete mess turd of a movie, but somehow manages to get some amazing shit so right that they basically can forecast the future in a way. It's amazing. <laughs> they they basically botched the year 2007, but nailed 2021. But yes. And I'm expecting us to be fighting down at the fucking land of personal freedoms here any day now, the way we're going. So Credit to Michael January, which is a great name. That's the writer. Michael January. Michael January. That's <laughs> tremendous. But dude, this movie, my God. Okay. So <laughs> I don't know if this struck you the same way that, that I did. It struck me, but Our lead character in this movie, like I said, is Chad McQueen, Steve McQueen's son. And I'll be damned if this dude didn't come across as the most poor man version of fucking um, uh, Michael Madsen that I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) To the bandana down. Yeah. (laughs) Dude. So bad. And I got to bring this up because this is one of my favorite parts in the whole movie. So they go undercover. And they they find their way to where these, you know, the death ring is to get involved in this, this, the fighting tournaments and stuff. And, and the guy's like, what should we call you two? And Gary Daniels kind of like, he's like, not like, you know, like does the elbow thing, like watch this. And he turns over, he's like the hammer and the pussycat. And the dude they're telling to, who, by the way, is one of my favorite characters in the movie, who is the eye patch guy, who's yeah. like the wrangler of the fighters, basically. And he's like, after he's like in the pussycat, he's like, oh, they're going to love that. We're just going to call you Alley Cat. And he's like, whatever, man. Like, <laughs> like when he's Alley like, cat. he's like, watch this. The hammer. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> oh, that the was tr- the pussycat. Dude, okay, and then, okay, and I, okay, got to throw this in, too. So, they add in this weird thing of fucking Chad McQueen's family. Like, his, like, and it kills me the way. That's where the acting's the worst. They did this in in the most haphazard, stupid way possible, where, like, shit's going on, and then all of a sudden he's playing God knows what, but it's supposed to be Super Nintendo. And his wife is just like, you can't be doing this. Like, it's the like, it looks like they have a terrible relationship. Then the dude gets involved with like one of the the servers, like the, the bartender chicks at this place. And it's like you have a fucking family that you clearly don't care about because you're trying to get in this chick's pants. And then they use the plot device. OK, well, we're going to kill his wife. <laughs> like, and then he, he's like, oh, son of a bitch. Like. It's like you didn't give a fuck about your wife 
the whole movie until she gets killed. And then you're like, oh, I can't believe you did this to my wife that I'm actively trying to cheat on during the course of being an undercover cop. Like it's it's yeah, hilarious. And the, the hell zone and death ring. And dude, because you know, that's that's, of course, I don't know. Did we run by the fact that the. uh yeah, because you, you, it was in the initial synopsis that these staged, lethal, no-holds-barred matches in a death ring is like the whole, you know, foundation of the plot yep. with them going undercover, fighting in the death ring. Dude, and okay, because, you know, these uh, these movies aren't known for how brilliant they are in their, their storylines, but... So they go to this thing and it's like, okay, death matches, right? I get it. It's like in a cage and shit like that. Guys have weapons. But then for no apparent reason, they just have non-lethal fights. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Why is this a thing? And then, and you know, the, the ultimate warrior swordsman character is the main guy. He's the bolo young of blood sport. Like the, he's the big boss. Okay. And you know, they showed like Chad McQueen's character, as soon as he gets involved in the shit, he does okay, but he gets the shit kicked out of him. And Gary Daniels is like, yeah, I'm going to show you how it's done. And he beats the shit out of everybody. And then he goes out to have a non-lethal fight that they make a lethal fight and they change his opponent to the swordsman. And this is something I did not remember. Okay. So, I remember Gary Daniels kind of being the lead character here. And I, this is my line of thinking. I remember this movie. Gary Daniels is the good dude and his partner's the dude that the warrior fucking decapitates. I remembered it the complete opposite wrong way. So I was kind of shocked when Gary Daniels gets decapitated by the warrior in this one. And I'm like, Oh man, they fucking made McQueen the main dude. This is fucking stupid. But he actually does a pretty good job considering what they need him to do, kind of playing the hero, because once his wife is killed, he basically wants to avenge her death, avenge his partner's death and win the tournament and leave with the fucking bartender chick. So that's kind of the way that they were going with this. But, dude, the, now the fighting when they get to the fights and shit, it's a, it drags like which is weird because it probably should be the most exciting part of the movie. But besides that, I don't have a whole lot bad to say about this one. I ended up enjoying it oh, way as, more than I thought I would. As we always say, entertaining, man. It was definitely that. And uh, yeah, I mean, that brings up, uh, got to shout out one of my highlights, which I'm sure you'll, you'll agree. And I'll give a shout out to the actor because he wasn't in it. Uh, he was just the voice, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. From Welcome Back, Carter. But the fucking... Yeah, he was the ring announcer that like narrated and commentated the matches, but sounded sounded like a strip yep. club announcer the yep. whole time. And when um, and that's where we got the he doesn't call him the swordsman, he calls him the swordsman. Swords so that's where Ed and I got that, <laughs> and it's and it's hilarious. And when he decapitates uh, Gary Daniels, you know he's like, "And your winner, the swordsman by decapitation." But but he made it too, like half the shit he was yeah. saying, and he helps you at least understand it too, as far as a an actual like positive plot device, because he'll he'll announce like this is a non lethal yep. match, and all that yeah, shit. Yeah, that's too. the and dude, you know something that he said in this that I was really kind of shocked by, and I'm sure as a wrestling fan and somebody that's followed like fighting sports, you you understand this. If there's you know there's a uh, Michael Buffer who's a famous announcer 
And everybody knows his saying is, let's get ready to rumble. And there's been instances, he gets paid $50,000 to announce that, okay? And he has sued people for using that phrase because he has it copywritten. But I'll be damned if in this movie, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs doesn't do the let's get ready to rumble. And it must have just fallen under the radar. But I was going to say Buffer didn't see. That's what I mean. I was was like, oh, shit. I'm (laughs) shocked that they did that. You know, it kind of took me by surprise. And dude, now, as we do here on the show, there's always the unintentional comedy. And this is one thing that made me laugh immediately and then almost immediately cringe at because I realized what he was saying. So whenever the swordsman gets broken out of jail, uh, there's a chase scene involving the two main character police and, you know, like this bus, I guess, would be the best way to explain it. But like they're chasing them. And it's like you hear Gary Daniels at one point. He's like, don't worry, fellas. It's getting a little tight in here. She's just like a virgin during her first date. And I'm laughing. And then I'm like, oh, that was like basically him saying something about a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> like, which is like. Yeah. Like, again, as we always say, couldn't get no, away with that now. you absolutely <laughs> couldn't. But, dude, there's so much funny shit. And, like, dude, it's really bizarre, too, at how good the chemistry of the actors were in this movie, considering that none of them are really particularly good actors. It works. Like, the characters don't feel forced and weird. Like, they all feel oddly authentic. And it it really kind of lends itself to, like... This movie's low budget. It's probably not being made by the most talented people. But for whatever reason, the ultimate product is pretty solid on this one. I mean, dude, I would easily say this is one of the better movies we've ever watched on Thursday Night Prime. Well, you know what I think it is, is just the creative mm-hmm. aspect of it where, uh, again, we've been we've been through the storyline and synopsis. So I don't want to like, go through it again, but just to break it down, like bullet point wise, it's like it's the near future. Crime has risen to an exponential rate. There's these hell zones ruled by street gangs. Then like the one is controlled by the mastermind. He's having these freaking death ring fights. The cops go in undercover. It's all trying to expose an alleged black market involving the sale of counterfeit AIDS vaccines. So when you have that all on paper, just try to pull that off as a film, I think is what helped this whole thing just come together. And like you said, and it's the main thing I love. It's like what I try to do doing our independent films when, when you're dealing with a shoestring budget is at least creating your own world to take people in. And that's what this did, dude. It's it's completely its own unique, original fucking world that, that is this movie fire. Absolutely, man. So as we do here on the show, the Jay, do you have a uh, tagline for us? We got a couple of them for firepower. Don't fuck around. Hey, eel. So the, the main one is firepower. You can enter the hell zone, but you can never leave it. And then uh, there's one, probably a different promotional poster or something. That's a mind blowing trip to hell. That's the one firepower. that I saw. And I was like, okay, that's a, that's a pretty good one. So, uh, <laughs> As we do here on the <laughs> yeah. show, we like to do the five-star rating scale. So the J, what are you giving five firepower this week? I, I go firepower. I'll give it a nice solid okay. three stars. I went with three and a half on this one. I definitely enjoyed this movie, got a kick out of it. And I think that uh, ultimately this is the antithesis 
of what this segment is about. These specific types of movies, specifically this one, it just really, pun intended. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, so and it's funny because this movie is <laughs> they even used Warrior well. Like they didn't give him a ton of lines. Like he, yeah. he was just there to look be big and imposing, and I thought it worked out amazingly. The Swords Man. So that is Firepower from 1993 right here on Thursday Night Prime, the most action-packed segment in weekly podcasting. So we have to take our final commercial break. When we come back, we're going to do the show wrap-up and talk a little goofs. Sound good to Jay? Perfect. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Cut and Run Studios is a multimedia facility that specializes in video production and photography. In the internet era, visual communication is the most powerful tool for storytelling. We believe it is our job to deliver the most compelling visual interpretation of a message and provide all the necessary capabilities in-house so that we can cover every angle of your story. Our production facility is at 1532 Beachview Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, 15216. Check us out at cutandrunstudios.com. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So the J, what do we got this week on the Goof Front? It's a episode 81 of the What's Real Podcast, and as we say every week hey, here at this segment, Goose or Goose does not disappoint. We're in 2021 planet Earth, and there is never, or I should say always, an abundance of goofs and we're starting off with we we love these themes that we end up having just naturally and organically here on the what's real podcast and specifically the goose or goose segment here a couple episodes ago we had a young man running onto the field at yankee stadium and getting quote-unquote destroyed by security (laughs) and now our latest viral video has a fan running on the field avoiding security but gets tackled by the dodgers ball girl I highly recommend looking it up as the ball girl hits this dude and he fucking front flips over the retaining wall. <laughs> dude, you know what my favorite part was is like when this dude, cause they showed, I've seen it from like five different angles, but it's like when you get the one where you can fully see the ball girl and like what she's doing, like she lines his ass up like Ray Nitschke, yeah. like a middle linebacker, yeah. man. And the best. she's like shifting her legs. I'm like, dude, she's going to plant this motherfucker. <laughs> dude, those those ball girls and ball dudes they have are legit, typically. Like they're there for a reason. I mean, you're getting on a major league field. It's usually yeah. like a talented young athlete or something like that. So yeah. she showed it there. Absolutely. Highly recommend looking that up. Uh, this particular uh, video is on CBS Sports Ball Girl Stops Fan Who Ran Across Field, Dodgers Ball Girl. So hashtag Dodgers Ball Girl. Great, great job, young lady. Uh, moving on with Good the Goose job. or Goose. Um, this was a hilarious, hilarious story. I'm sure you didn't catch it because it's so freaking weird, but I had to shout it out because that's what Goose or Goose is about. I'll just throw the headline at you, hate you. And this is from CNN itself. Woman marries man accused of killing her brother decades ago as he awaits new trial. Okay. Take that in. Hey, eel. <laughs> An Ohio. Say, wait. <laughs> yeah. Say that again. A woman marries man accused of killing her brother decades ago as he awaits new trial. She's marrying her brother's murder is what's happening here. Hey, eel. That makes sense, especially in current climate America and Ohio. An Ohio man convicted of murder is getting a new trial later this month, but before his court date, John Tedgen married Crystal Strauss over the weekend. She is the sister of the man he's accused of killing. 
<laughs> Maybe she just fucking hated her brother. I know. <laughs> she sent him a letter who he was still behind bars after the first trial of killing her brother, Brian McGarry in 87, offering her forgiveness and saying she believed that he didn't kill her brother. And he ended up hitting it. So there you Dude, go. <laughs> I, I don't know why I just see this like as a documentary where she's like, you know, I believe that he did not kill my brother. And then it cuts to him and he's like, oh, no, I killed her brother. Yeah, I killed the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah. And then I killed that ass. Yeah. <laughs> I killed his neck with a shift and then I killed her butthole with my penis. <laughs> delirious folks we know we are at Doran Goose or Goose I apologize to those offended by those comments next up nah, we don't. We are talking about celebrity bathing habits that have become a, a big topic on uh, social media and the entertainment news scene why are anti-showering stars trying so hard to make us think hey y'all oh god because I, re- I heard this recently I want to say about fucking Kutcher and Mila Kunis don't like bathe their kids. They don't bathe like, their kids. And then um, Dax Shepard and and uh, his wife were, were on. Kristen Bell. Yeah. Kristen Bell, a morning show talking about their take on it. And they said they, they do, but every once in a while. And I know this is apparent, like especially in the summer. Uh, for those that don't know, my wife's a teacher and I work a lot. So uh, she, she does a lot of the heavy lifting with the kids, all them being off in the summer. And there's times where I'll just randomly think that I'm like, when is the last time you goose took a shower? You know, my son's like (laughs) two days ago. I'm like, yeah, right. So I get it with the kids, but then you have goofs like Jake Gyllenhaal, who was a big part of this, who said that, uh, you know, it's like kind of healthy to let the natural stank kind of embrace the funk kind of situation there. And I guess uh, they said, OG anti deodorant duo, Matthew McConaughey and Cameron Diaz. So these people basically just smell like rotted assholes. <laughs> Jesus more, Christ. more and more, I find bathing to be less necessary. Gyllenhaal, 40, told Vanity Fair. His aromic admission came virtually unprompted. He's just, they're like, so what's your next movie? Like, are you going to do Miss, Miss, uh, Miss Mysterio again? Told you, Delirious. Are you getting, so, you know, whoa, from whoa, 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 <laughs> yeah. whoa. I don't bathe often. Go ahead. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, well, Jake, we it's like it's almost like like excuse, sir, this is a Wendy's. Like, what the fuck yeah. are you talking about? Uh, I just uh, you know, you again, the hits keep on coming for 2021, and we love it here at the What's Real podcast because it helps our segments a lot. Even though, again, I apologize for my delirious state. Moving on, hey, Ed, just a couple more stories here on Goose or Goose 81. I'm sure you heard this one. We had to bring it up because it's such a big story at the time, and it's great. It is about the duct-taped flight attendant. And I don't know oh, if you yeah. saw <laughs> I don't know if you saw like the interview he did, but that has come on to be fake, but that was hilarious. But for those that don't know that are listening, or maybe you're listening in the year 2032 to What's Real, episode 81. But at the time, uh, a rude passenger was getting like pretty crazy. And a 22-year-old man, I guess, groped the breasts of two flight attendants and punched a third. So uh, one of the frontier flight attendants duct taped a man to a seat. Dude, he said, you ain't touching like, their titty. I, I wonder what the hell happened. Like these people go through the whole, you know, like they show up, they check their bags, they go wait by the gate, they go up when they're called. They wait in line. They say, excuse me. Pardon me, ma'am. What time is the flight? Okay, yep. Get on the plane. 
They fucking shut the doors. Fucking plane takes off. And they're like, immediately just go grabbing titties, punching people. Like, what are you going to do now? You're never going to get out of here alive. Like, this motherfucker's been totally normal for four and a half hours at the airport. Plane takes off. He's grabbing titties, punching people, shitting himself. Like, motherfuckers have to duct tape you to a seat. Like, I know that I could have a temper, but like, I've never been to the point where motherfuckers had to duct tape me to anything to calm me down. But, you know, this is the world we live in now, apparently, where everybody's a fucking toddler. Well, to break it down, hey, uh, when asked what happened in the cabin, the passenger had two drinks, spilled a third on himself, was wondering the cabin shirtless and groped two women's breasts and was soon duct taped to a seat. It really shows you the difference in the day and time, you know, because like we're hearing about this story now and it's like this dude's, you know, and probably embarrassed at least to some degree. But like, meanwhile, this was like a typical flight on a Thursday for Ric Flair for 47 years. Yeah. And shout out to our buddy Runk where uh, Runk would be right with him, just plastered after two drinks. <laughs> <laughs> like, I hope that was one one brother. Like, like, man, I just had two Miller lights. Come here. I'm just grab some titties. Like this dude, I seen him finish down his second Miller light and then his dick was out. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, at least at least Flair's dick comes out after like drinking a fucking fifth of Jack Daniels and 18 glasses of wine. You know, oddly enough, I th- this is totally just a side topic, but I saw this today. I was reading something that Flair's actually getting ready for an in-ring return. And I've seen him do all kinds of weightlifting and shit recently. Yeah, I did see the pictures of him. Yeah, posing his bicep. He dude, looks I, huge. I saw him deadlift 400 . pounds. And I'm like, man, this dude's fucking how old and he can deadlift 400? Like, that's pretty impressive. Well, and throw in the fact that he just survived the heart attack that really could have killed him that's three true. years ago. Yep, you got me there. God that's, damn, dude. That's well, pretty it's much the nature it. boy. He's, he's not Ric Flair for nothing, that man. So Indeed. Woo! Hey, you know. uh, last up, we are becoming the new alligator kingdom of the United States of America here in Pittsburgh as the 22nd alligator has been found in the Pittsburgh area in Allegheny County as a small alligator was spotted on New England Road in West Mifflin. This being the 22nd reported alligator seen in the past few years. You know, it's really weird. I don't want to alarm anybody and it's not related. I can't find 22 of my alligators. Oh, so it all comes. No, to I'm just saying it's a coincidence is all. OK, I did not let them out into freedom. This is not the land of personal freedoms. OK, this is not the hell zone. I'm going to I'm going to work all that shit. I'm well, work all at least that the West Mifflin Thursday and I prime into my normal daily <laughs> speak now. <laughs> yeah, uh, the West Mifflin police had a little bit of fun on social media, on Facebook with it. Uh, posted a picture and some video saying, is anyone missing this little guy? Last seen crossing New England Road, maybe about three feet long. Didn't respond to any, any of the names we called it, and we weren't able to check for a chip. Seriously, though, if you see this wandering around, please call the police. <laughs> or, or blow it up with <laughs> grenades, one or the other. So, <laughs> As I mentioned, this is just the latest saga in the world of Pittsburgh's alligators. In 2019, stray gators were found all throughout the city, including one named Chomp. Yeah, Chomps, which I personally know cool. Chomps. So I, shout I out like to Chomp. Chomp. Miss you, brother. He's cool. So, uh, but as I say to my brother, 
from another mother, hey, yo, between the ball girl destroying a dude over the thing at Dodger Stadium to a woman marrying her brother's accused killer to celebrity bathing habits to flight attendants needing to duct tape dudes after they drank two fucking Coors Lights and to Pittsburgh being the alligator capital of the world like whatchamacallit was the (laughs) vampire capital of the world. Santa Carla. The J is struggling, hey, y'all. And the J will, I will add myself to the list of being goofs. One thing about Pittsburgh, I could never stand all the goddamn alligators. (laughs) But that's it for us this week here on episode 81. If you guys are listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a five-star review. Helps get more eyes and ears on the program. But of course, you can listen to us on all your favorite podcasting platforms weekly, such as Apple iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course, every week on churchillpictures.com. If you have anything you'd like to send to the show, you could do th- do so through email, easy for me, at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get out of here, I hear you, the J, revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up like not showering for seven months or wearing deodorant so I can be like <laughs> Gyllenhaal and McConaughey. Hey, y'all. All right, all right, all right. But shout out as I do each week. Love the show. To the wizard behind the boards, our producer, Cam. Keep doing what you're doing, Cam. It's a beautiful thing. Love the work you do and always appreciate it. To my brother, hey, another Tuesday in the books, man. Loving it. Looking forward to hitting up AEWs tomorrow and Friday. Our show will drop Friday, and we'll be heading to AEW Rampage that night, man. The inaugural show. Love it, dude. But uh, love the show. And as I've been saying, I'm just going to stick with it for this week. Leading the charge is, hey, we'll be saying it later as General Custer himself. Stay safe, stay healthy out there. You'll hear the J next week. So again, guys, that is it for episode 81. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys sitting down with us each and every week. And shout out to you. This is, I appreciate you sitting down here with me each and every week on the show. Nobody else I'd rather do it with, brother. And of course, to our producer, Cam, thank you for all the hard work you put in for the show each and every week. Because as we know, nobody beats the whiz so that's it guys for episode 81 join us right here next week for episode 82 of the what's real podcast so stay safe stay healthy please get vaccinated and we'll see you right here next week on the what's real podcast what's real, what's real? What's real? What's real?